What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Greetings, friends. Welcome back to the Critically Acclaimed Podcast. It's a film review podcast where we have impeccable taste. Thank you, Rodney! With that sound effect. My name is Whitney Seibold. I am a film critic. I write for Slash Film, and with me as always is... My name is William Bibiani. I am a film critic for The Rap, and sometimes I write stuff for Slash Film, mm-hmm. and uh, everybody calls me Bibbs. And uh, yeah, this is critically acclaimed. And Happy uh, New Year. Happy New Year. Uh, we are recording this on New Year's Day. That's right. Very fancy. So, so <laughs> I'm not sure if that's fancy. What? We're working on a holiday. Some people uh, work today. Like us. We, yeah. That's what we're doing right now. Yeah. Um, thank you for tuning in. And this is a very special episode because we're not reviewing new films. We're reviewing the year 2022. That's right. Uh, however, just so we're clear... Uh, there are probably going to be some films that we talk about that we might not have mentioned or had a chance to review earlier in the year. That's right. Because Whitney and I, like I think any critic who takes this seriously, uh, wanted to catch up as much as possible before they presented anything even remotely resembling uh, their picks for the best movies of the year. Uh, The best movies of the year is a wonderful privilege that a film critic gets to do. And of course, anyone can do it. Yeah. But if you're a professional film critic, it's it's kind of you taking stock of the year that you just went through. And it's your last opportunity to just sort of guide people to films that they might not otherwise have seen. And also potentially to add your rubber stamp to the films that everyone else likes to. Because, right. Because I look at a lot of the top ten lists going around this year. And look, mine is some as well. Mm. Some of them are, yeah, that movie's on every list. Yeah, and you know what? Man. Great movie. I agree with a lot of them. It's fine. <laughs> well, it's just and, uh, part of me always just feels a little guilty. Like, okay, yeah, I like that yeah, to, one too. That's also good. To, to iterate a point we make a lot on this podcast, uh, people use top ten lists for different reasons. A lot of people like to use their top ten lists for a very uh, particular, like, canonical posterity. Yeah. They want to make sure that the films are marked in history as significant. I was and, on uh, the right side of history, damn it. Yeah and, yeah, and as such, you get a lot of people who are gathering around films that are widely acclaimed. Yeah. So you're going through a lot of top ten lists and seeing a lot of the same movies and start to look a little boring after a while. Great movies yeah, start to dominate the conversation so much mm-hmm. that you get tired of talking about them, even if yeah. they're great. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so, again, no, no disrespect to the movies necessarily. Hmm. I don't like all of them, but... Yeah. Yeah, that's it's just sort of a thing where it's like, oh, okay. Well, mm-hmm. you, you didn't see anything else interesting. It was just mm-hmm. those the ones everyone else saw. Uh, um, so yeah, I got a bit a, of a of a, an eclectic mismatch myself. Yeah, my, mine's yeah. mine's all over the place and, and doesn't have all, what you might expect. Um, I'm very curious. Whit- Whitney came a, into the, Whitney came into my apartment tonight and he said, "I'm gonna make you mad. You're gonna you're gonna make everybody mad with my <laughs> list, and I can't wait to make everybody mad." But I, I'm not doing it 
just to make people mad. No, it's just a fun <laughs> byproduct of what you were going to do anyway. <laughs> Um, this, uh, this has been a pretty good year for movies. It's been a little all over the place. Mm-hmm. The, uh, there's been a lot of really wonderful animation this year. Really has. It's a good, good year for animated film. I heard there's someone been... actually say it was a bad year for animation. I'm like, have you been paying attention? Cause I think there've been some yeah, astounding they're... motion pictures uh, in animation. I'll give you a little bit of a spoilers. There are three animated films on my top 10 list. Wow. So, um, I only got one. Uh, and this has also been a, a weirdly good year for three-hour-long maximalist cinema. Yeah, I noticed that too. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, between uh, RRR, yep. Babylon, uh-huh. Avatar, yep. The Batman, uh-huh. uh, uh, Bardo, uh-huh. uh, Elvis a little Elv- bit. Yeah, yeah. Elvis. Like, yeah. That's not three hours, but it's, it's the same It's an same epic spirit. film. It's a yeah. very, very long film. Like yeah. Some filmmakers are just swinging big this year. Like all, yeah. They're all landing this year, and I... I appreciate that kind of ambition, even if it's a failure. It's sometimes, yeah. at least, sometimes fascinating to watch. Take a big swing, yeah. You know, like yeah. go for it. Like I'd rather you, I'd rather you flame out than fizzle. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so it's, that's, that's a great. It's an exceptional year for the horror genre. Uh, it's been uh, hot and cold. I'd say There's uh, really some, some highs and some lows. Uh, I, th- I think it's been astounding. I mean, we've had. Um, uh, we'll, we had, we'll, we'll talk about some of these, I guess I'm we'll sure, talk about yeah. a few, but yeah, yeah. I, you know, why, why, why ruin it now? Hmm. But we'll talk about some horror films, certainly. Um, I, you know, it hasn't been... Uh, uh, you, know, you know what it's even been a great year for? Hmm. Mysteries. Murder mysteries have been pretty big this year. Just, there, was, there was Glass Onion. Glass Onion. See how they run. See how they run. There was Confess Fletch. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Batman. Oh, The Batman, yeah. It's, yeah it's that's like, structured it's, like a mystery. It's, it's a, a remake of Seven, pretty much, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and more besides, but mm-hmm. yeah, that's it's. I remember when Knives Out came out, everyone's like, oh, and, oh, and Death they... on the Nile. What was that? Death on the Nile. A Death on the Nile, yeah. a decision to leave. Like, mm. we've actually had a lot of really good mystery movies this year. So. There's no shortage of films to choose from. My initial like wave of like I'll I'll pick my top ten from these films was like thirty films long. Yeah, and you could take my runners up and just slap those on a list, <laughs> and I would stand by that too because yeah. it's been a, just a really great year for movies all around. I feel like I feel like if you're really paying attention, it's going to be a good year for movies if you know where to look. Yeah. Generally and, uh, speaking, it's hard to find a bad yeah, year for we're, movies. We're yeah. critics. We tend to like go down in the trenches and right. find some of the better things that you might not have heard of, at mm. least if we're doing our jobs right. Uh, but some years just have a better average. That's true. That's true. Um, yeah. I, I look back, uh, the one year I can think of in like my lifetime that was just pretty much an out-and-out rotten year for films was 2006. Mm. Like, there were some good ones that year. No, there always six. There's always a couple good ones. Half Nelson came out that year. I really like Half Nelson. But, yeah. um, yeah, for the, like, the, the big Oscar winners that year were stuff like, uh, uh, Babel, and, you know, movies of that ilk. Yeah, just these really self-serious... Yeah, really... Kind of... Really kind, kind, of, of kind of miserable, yeah. hazy movies. It, yeah, like, you, you might you might say they're good, but then you just don't want to think about them after a while. Right, right. Just right. kind of done. Yeah. Uh, so there, there's going to be good movies every year. Um, what you see, of course, is going to be different from what everyone else sees. Mm-hmm. Uh, an okay year in terms of, like, high-profile blockbusters. Uh, the, yeah, we had some good ones. Uh, if if you look at just sort of like overall box office, I think mm-hmm. in 2019, prior you know pre COVID, the last pre COVID uh, year, I think o- overall domestic box office was like in the 11 billion range. Yeah, it's like a lot of money. And then the next year it was like nothing. It was like two million. It was like yeah, not, it was almost really nothing. not great. Yeah. And then the next year it was like double. That was like 
four billion, mm-hmm. and now we're up to like maybe seven or eight. So it's like it looks like it's climbing back. Mm. We'll see if we ever recover. If we get back to like that eleven billion, Again, I think I'm, what... I'm, I'm I, I, I I'm pessimistically saying probably not. Like, I, don't I think know the movie we're... landscape has changed too well, much already. It, it goes down a lot, and then it yeah. goes back up again a little bit. And it was mm. doing that even before the pandemic. But it was people zigzagging talking, pretty close. People though, were talking yeah. about, like, oh, are people were even still going to go to movies? Are the movies nice numbered? And, I mean, maybe. Mm. Uh, but I think that the eagerness to go back for certain films, at least, even though it's not necessarily... Uh, people aren't necessarily casting a very wide net in terms of what they're willing to pay for. Mm. Um, is encouraging. You know, yeah. we've had like big hits like Top Gun and Avatar mm-hmm. and the, some of the Marvel movies did really, really well. Uh, and then we also had some like mid-range smashes mm-hmm. like Elvis or, or Smile. Or, or nope. Nope was a big hit. Nope yeah. did really well. Uh, not amazing, but it did well. It cracked 100 million despite being an original movie mm-hmm. in the middle of summer. And um, so I think there's I think there's still interest. And I think mm-hmm. it's uh, what, what we're this year in particular everything was really spaced out. Mm. There was like, you know, Top Gun would come out and then there wouldn't be another potentially big blockbuster for like two weeks. And then there wouldn't be another potentially big blockbuster until like Minions two weeks later. There, were, Everyone had room to breathe. Yeah. And I don't think we're going to have that next year. Next year it looks like it's going to be really overstuffed again. No, and, and, and we'll see. We'll see if people yeah. go to the movies with the frequency they once did. That's a question. Uh, when it comes to selecting the best, popularity... Don't enter into it. I don't care what uh, yeah, anyone else thinks but me. Ad- ad- advertising, box office, it, those things are completely irrelevant. Yeah. And when I say I don't care what anyone thinks but me, of course I care what you think. I'm interested in what you think. I want to read what you think. Mm. But when it comes time to deciding what the movies I think are best, I'm going off of my own metrics. Yeah. I'm not yeah. factoring in what was the buzz? Is it up for any Oscars? How much money did... I don't care. Mm. Yeah. There are people like, oh, how did this movie not make your list? It made over a billion dollars. It doesn't make it good. Or <laughs> <laughs> even if it even if it is good, it doesn't necessarily make it interesting. Uh, and that's the yeah. thing. I looked at someone. I, I published my list um, on Letterboxd. Yeah, I, uh, I didn't see it. So yeah, yeah, like a, a, about a day ago, uh, depending on uh, when you're listening to this. But uh, you know, by the time it gets published, about a day. And someone asked, "Hey, where's this movie that made a billion dollars?" And I was like, "It's." I don't think it's very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even dislike it. I gave it a positive review. I just don't think it's at nearly as interesting as, as, as the movies I picked. Yeah. Which, again, some of them you might know. Some of them might seem kind of weird. Uh, but these are the ones that fascinated me. Mm-hmm. And my criteria for what I would call the best of the year, you know, shifts. And it's and it's sometimes it's particular to the film. A lot of films are trying to do very different things from other films. And... You kind of gauge by what they're going for, but I don't know. The more I, the more I think about it, the more I just I want to pick the films that I think are likely to stick with me. Yeah. Either because they found like a permanent place in my subconscious, or because I want to watch them over and over again. Uh, and mm. if that's the case, I think they're good movies, and I can tell All you right. why. So uh, there will be some movies that I heavily praised throughout the year that didn't make my top ten, and some others that kind of snuck up on me. And if you'll go back and listen to my original review of at least one of the movies on my list, you'll you'll probably hear me being pretty tepid about it. I don't even think I gave it like our highest rating. Hmm. We review films on a C minus to C plus level. Lowest is a C minus. Yeah. You know, mixed bag is a C, and then C plus is above average, aka good or great. Pretty sure I gave it a C, and now I'm calling it one of the best movies of the year because it oh. just it just stuck with me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I just I retroactively, yeah, I was I wouldn't say it was wrong, but I was definitely not 
right. <laughs> like, I didn't hate it. I didn't pull 180. <laughs> it's just a totally different film. Um, no, uh, the way we do top 10 lists on the Critically Acclaimed Network, if anyone is new, uh, we do this the uh, same way we do it on our Iron List podcasts. Uh, we're not super concerned about ranking. Yeah. That's not terribly important. If it makes our top 10, we both saw a ton of movies this year. Like, like at least 150 or so each. Um, I actually don't know what your number is or if you want to share it, but we watch a lot of movies. Uh, yeah. I mean, not just new movies, not including the old stuff we watch for yeah. our various and other I, projects. I couldn't even... Uh... Some of my the movies I saw this year didn't qualify because I saw them at a festival. Yeah, they're not out yet. So yeah, Same. they haven't been released to the the public. So yeah. I, I went. I was I was actually sat on a jury of a festival this year. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I saw uh, I think twelve to eighteen. something Damn. in there. A lot of movies yeah. for that festival. And uh, not they're I, not out yet. I, even if I loved them, I can't say because they're yeah. not out yet. Yeah, exactly. And I I wasn't on a jury or anything like that, but I saw some films in advance for festival coverage. Mm. Uh, I, most of most of which did come out. A few didn't, and a couple of them were quite good. They might make my list next year. We'll see. Um, but yeah, okay. So basically, yeah. So if we if it makes our top ten, it's all like basically a tie. Uh, and uh, however, the big difference is that we're, we'll stick by our number one. Mm. Our number one, we'll save it for last. Yeah, it's the film that we think is. If you asked us, hey, what's the best movie of the year? You have ten seconds, or the Earth will explode. We'd tell you this film, and yeah, we'd right. be able to stand by it. Uh, and I definitely have a number one. It's a confident uh, number one this okay. year. Uh, so uh, on that note, yes. Um, let's just get to it. We'll do some runners up at the end. Yeah. Uh, Whitney, what do you want to talk about first? Um. Uh, I guess. Uh, that I will mention as uh, in the number 10 spot, even though it's not the 10th. Yeah, whatever. So. Uh, I'm going to talk about one. It's actually the screener is right here in front of me. I'm going to talk about Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. Oh, I like Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. <laughs> bodies, Bodies, Bodies. Uh, it takes place in a big mansion and a bunch of kids there are really rich, except for one of them who is, horror of horrors, upper middle class. <laughs> uh, th- and uh, they are, they're there to ride out a hurricane. The power's going to go out. They have... Pallets and pellets of, like, water and batteries. The power might be out for, like, eight hours. Like, they don't yeah. need all those supplies. Probably but, not, no. Yeah. But uh, the point is they're isolated yeah. in a horror movie kind of a way. And they decide to play a game but, called Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. Like, they, when they're driving up to the house, yeah. it, like, looks like they're trying to do shots from The Shining. Yeah. Like, where they're yeah. kind of weaving in and out of the mountains. Very, uh, very alone. Every single character in this movie is a complete asshole. <laughs> Pretty much. Even the ones that you think are like, yeah, oh, well, that's like the this, nice one. It's like the You'll find out character, more. But yeah, it turns out they're all like lying and self-serving. Yeah. And uh, they play this like fake murder game, Bodies, 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 where one of them pretends to be a murderer and sneaks around and fake kills people. And of course, eventually they find a real dead body. Pete Davidson is found dead outside, sliced yeah. with an, a blade. And uh, so everybody starts freaking out. They start accusing everybody and... All of their pettiness and insecurity and just horrible personality traits shoot right to the surface. And the the film climaxes in this weird orgy of, like, pop psychological buzzwords. It's not even dialogue. Like, the scene in the movie where, like, okay, this is where... It's almost like, imagine, like, I don't know, Marriage Story, where there's that huge blow-up between Scarlett Johansson. Say how they really feel. But imagine these are just incredibly immature people who've never like 
read anything meaningful in their lives and all they know is some terminology and they're not even using it right half the time and it all comes out and they all mean it but they have no idea what they're talking about Mm. they have no sense of context they have no sense of their place in the world and they're really oblivious (laughs) to their privilege they're all just a lot of uh, whodunits will try to like find some way to subvert the expected Mm. whodunit quality and one of the most common tropes in the whodunit uh, uh, genre is you get a whole bunch of people in a place someone gets killed we have to figure out who did that yeah the person who gets killed is usually someone who is such an asshole yeah. that everyone has a motive for killing them that's but, actually they say that out loud in the movie see how they run yeah that's, uh, adrian brody yeah. he's like the asshole character is like mm-hmm. yeah i'm the asshole I'm the one who's going to get killed in this story. Like, yeah, he's I, self-aware about I, it. I, yeah. I finally saw that. It's cute. I didn't it's, love it, but it's, it's cute. Yeah. It's a nice, it's a fun movie if you like who done it, but it's, not it's, much more. It's a fun premise more than it is a, a yeah. fun movie. It, but in any case, um, Bodies, 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 everyone in the cast is that character. Yeah. Like, pretty much every <laughs> single person in the including cast the is that Including the person who dies. Including the person who dies. They're all just... They would be the person who died in any oh. other whodunit oh. because everyone would want them dead. Yeah. And there's two ways to do that. One is is as if that's supposed to be cute, mm. you know, as if we're supposed to be enjoying that. And the other one is just this judgmental tone. Mm. And bodies, bodies, bodies doesn't think too highly of its characters, Yo, and that and that makes it fun. That 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 actually that weirdly enough that makes it great. It, it's this very uh, deliberately pointed. Uh, criticism of the kids yeah. this movie hates the youth yeah and uh and it, i think it was i think the filmmaker is is still pretty young um let me look yeah. up the door i forgot her name yeah well, um, i forgot her name too that's uh, not me. helena rain rain is her name yeah uh she's a, a dutch actress and um okay she's a little older than us so yeah. um she's looking okay. at the kids and thinking something's wrong yeah. the, the the kids aren't all right and uh it, it, this is a film that it really tries to uh in an intelligent way, mm-hmm. take the piss. This is not just... I've seen far too many movies where it's all about kids look at their phones too much. It's like yeah. older kids, older people are like a little out of touch. Men, women, and children. Men, women, and children is like a the prime offender. Example. Oh, um, so fucking uh, condescending. What was that one with thing. Andrew Garfield? It was, um, oh. uh, it was like... Social Network? Not so, not Social Network. It was like Fake Famous. It was a Gia Coppola movie. Oh, I didn't see uh, that. Okay. Yeah, and... Uh, not fake famous. That was a documentary, but um, yeah. yeah, that was another one. Like you look at your phones too much. Phone culture is meaningless. Yeah. Real life is out here. Like you're not. That's engaging just with, Yeah, you're not engaging with this. This yeah. is the film that, that does it. It's yeah. the film that enga- engages with the language and finds the worst possible people who have taken from like various online cultures and sort of that influencer mm-hmm. culture and taken just the most superficial elements and and felt that that's enough and they mm-hmm. think that they're all really smart when clearly they're not yeah I look at the cast of Bodies 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 the way mm-hmm. I would look at the cast of like a Bunuel film yeah like yeah, just like, like just like they're rich Jim, and there Jim, might be interesting Jim Henson's discreet charm of the bourgeoisie babies <laughs> that's the best description of <laughs> but the other thing I think is really cool about this movie is it's actually it's actually really interesting looking like once mm. the power goes out because it has to and then more people start dying um, the majority of the movie is lit, at least within the narrative, uh, by everyone's phones. 
Mm. And that's an aesthetic that can look really boring if people don't do it right. Yeah. And I actually think Bodies, Bodies, Bodies gets a really great atmospheric quality about that. It doesn't feel uh, like like a like a limitation. Uh-huh. Uh, and it, it actually it's actually kind of creepy in a way that that mm. usually doesn't feel well, in a movie. I really like it. It's the um... It's the phones, and they also have like glow bracelets. Oh yeah, like like yeah. like if you were at a rave, like a lot of them yeah. were in that. So, so there's like like, like there's some color and texture to the darkness. Yeah, there, that I, I also appreciate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, really, really good movie. I'm glad it, you picked it. It's unbelievably bitter, and there are a lot of movies this year that uh, really took the piss out of the rich. Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, uh, there was. I'll, I'm about to talk about it at least. Okay, one. yeah. There's yeah. there was the menu that was, yeah. that one came out earlier. That um, was fun. I like that movie. Uh, there was Triangle of Sadness, which you know mm. had a, a wonderful sequence in the middle middle where the rich people are just literally bathing in their own vomit, uh, and, and the toilets back up and brown right. water floods the hallways, and all the rich people are rolling around in it, and they're all sick. It's beautiful. Uh, (laughs) Unfortunately, that movie, like there's way too much on either side of that sequence, but uh, yeah, that middle is great. Fair enough. Um, Okay. Well, that's I'm perfectly good segue. I I didn't pick bodies, 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 But I did, however, pick a tie okay. that is very thematically connected. Right. Because, as I said, really great year for mystery movies. Mm-hmm. And while I could have gone overboard and picked a whole bunch, Just I decided. Put them all in one line. I, I, not all, because, not like I said, see how they run? Very nice movie. I enjoyed watching it, but it's mostly for people who really like whodunits. If you don't, it's going to mm-hmm. feel like. Kind of like Wes Anderson light light. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't it doesn't know if it wants to be wry or twee, and that's a bad zone to be in. Um, but it was mostly likable. But there there were several who done it that are fine. Uh, it but, can't it can't decide to be wry or twee. Might be the most critic thing you've ever said. <laughs> <laughs> but like you know, Death on the Nile. That was a very nice adaptation of Death on yeah, the Nile. I had a lot of fun with that movie. Like, uh, second half especially. Is yeah, really, uh, once it kicks in, like it's really really good. Uh, but the the two and I, I guess Bodies 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 kind of belongs there as well. But the two that I picked to represent the genre mm-hmm. that I just thought were just kind of like the most entertaining. Yeah. They got, but also have some real commentary. And some of them were Confess Fletch, okay, which I missed you, in its yeah. opening run, and Glass Onion, which okay. I, which we already mentioned that I, I love to pieces. Um, and I finally caught up on that. I didn't yeah. get to review it when when we reviewed and, it. So and I, I want to hear your thoughts, but let me get, let me do the setup. Um, they're both films about very wry, witty comedi- uh, comedians, uh, comic versions yeah. of uh, detectives. Uh, John Hamm and Confess Fletch is a. Uh, uh, He's just a cad. He's he's, he's just a, he's just a piece of shit. He's he's slovenly and he doesn't give a doesn't give a care. No, he's uh, he's the, really wonderful. We've actually. we've actually uh, my wife and I have taken to doing something that uh, John Hamm does as Fletch because uh-huh. uh, he doesn't have a car. And so he takes, uh, like, Ubers and lifts everywhere. Uh-huh. And every time he gets out, he's like, yeah, thanks a lot. Four stars. And he bangs on the car. Yeah. He's like, oh, good job. Four stars. Like, that happens several times throughout the movie. So yeah. we've taken to do that. Yeah, good job. Four stars. Yeah. So, but he's, he plays, like, a, a, a now-retired investigative journalist who gets swept up in a very bourgeois mystery involving... I mean, it's actually impressive considering just how light the movie feels, just how much ground they cover. Because there's kidnapping, there's art theft, there's murder, and more. Hmm. Uh, He sleeps with everyone. Uh, He makes fun of everyone. But it's actually, it falls together really well. The mystery is clever and... Greg Matola, who's a filmmaker I'm generally not that big a fan of. I've I've never really been terribly fond of any movie he's ever done, even though I wouldn't call him a bad filmmaker. Um because everything is so like 
tidily constructed and put together. Uh, when character characters are allowed to just talk to each other and be funny, mm. there's an incredible sequence where uh, John Hamm meets the neighbor of the murder victim. Uh-huh. And he just goes over to her apartment while she makes dinner while her dog is like peeing on everything right. and she's like cutting herself and setting things on fire and it's this incredibly hilarious sequence and ostensibly we're supposed to be getting exposition from it but we're so distracted by the comedy that the plot is kind of like getting more complicated on purpose in a way yeah. like it's obfuscating uh uh some stuff we're supposed to be paying attention to so that the movie can get us later really really clever stuff wonderful cast everyone's really really great in it Glass Onion stars Daniel Craig as Benoit Blanc. He's black. He's back from Knives Out. Uh, in this one, he finds himself invited to a mystery-themed weekend uh, led by a billionaire, a reclusive billionaire played by Ed Norton, mm. and all of his friends who he considers disruptors. All of the people <laughs> who are there to shake up the status quo. Uh, and they're all going to come to this island, and he's going to pretend to be murdered, and everyone's going to try to solve it, but then someone actually dies, and a whole bunch of shit happens. And... I had so much fun watching Glass Onion. <laughs> I just, I it was such a treat. Every single member of the ensemble gets some really fun stuff to do. It's a great ensemble. Kate Hudson's fucking hilarious in this movie. <laughs> um, the dialogue is really witty. Uh, what I like about Ryan Johnson, I think even more so than Confess Fletch or some of the other who done this this year, um, he plays very fair. And if you pay attention, you can you can solve uh, yeah. his mysteries. Yeah. Uh, but he also uses pulp airplane novel, like soap operatic twists, uh -huh. to keep it surprising, even if you are ahead of the story. Uh -huh. And some of the surprises in the film are just a hoot. I didn't see them all coming. And the ending is some of the best class warfare catharsis I've seen in a while. I just, my heart soared watching some of the things that happened at the end of this movie, mm -hmm. even though they should ostensibly be shocking. Um, I had a blast with both of them, uh, but yeah, I think it was overall a great year for the genre, and those yeah, are my two faves. I think Confess Fletch is great. I yeah. think it's a great character piece. Mm -hmm. I think it's one of those screenwriterly movies oh, yeah. where you it's difficult to follow the, the plot the first time through, so you... Mm -hmm want to go back and watch again, but you don't mind because everybody's so funny and charming. And again, the plot works, yeah. so it holds up to close scrutiny and mm. watching it again It's like, wait, wait a minute, remember that plot point earlier where he like drove his van out to those graffiti artists? What was that about? And that pays off at the very end of the movie. There, there's, uh, a, there's a character in the movie uh, who I don't even think he even gets a close-up ever. Mm. It's a security guard voiced by Eugene Merman. I don't even know if he's playing the guy, <laughs> but it's it's like this, it's, it's like they got him in post to record him. If they got him on, on on set I don't know why they never gave him a close up but he's just the funniest security guard character I can ever remember in a movie <laughs> he's just every single thing he says is hilarious and but none of it's quotable it's just because of the way he's saying it it's just yeah, charming yeah. as hell uh, as for Glass Oven, uh, oven Glass Oven Glass Oven Glass yeah. Onion I finally yeah. saw it and um, I, I, th I think it's incredibly funny uh, I love Benoit Blanc as a yeah. character. I loved some of, uh, there's like some really wonderful cameos right at the beginning. Oh, yeah. Uh, two of whom died before production came out. Yeah, so like but they shot the, the them, they died, yeah. and now the movie's out, which is just kind of shocking, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a period piece, though. It actually like takes place at like 2020 and like yeah. May of 2020. 
So, like, it makes sense. It's all so, fine. I, I love Benoit Blanc as a character. I love the cast. They all are just playing off of each other perfectly. They shouldn't fit together, and yet I think... And I can owe, owe this to Ryan Johnson, the director. Yeah. I think he is able to direct this large ensemble as if they kind of know each other. Uh, there's chemistry between everybody. Yeah. Uh, Even though they yeah. seem so different. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, you know, Catherine Hahn and Dave Bautista wouldn't have thought so, but there you go. Yeah, they're great. Um, I uh, I liked the first third, uh-huh. and I liked the end, and then there's like maybe an hour in the middle or just sags. Oh, really? Um, oh, that's a bummer. Well, the problem is there's there's they. You say it plays fair, and I guess it kind of does, but it also uh, actually doesn't in a lot of ways because it uh, at the end of the first act mm. it like takes you back in time and recontextualizes some stuff yeah you'll uh, learn things you didn't know which is fine for a murder mystery yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. it's not that that he did it but mm. all of the apart from like one vital like twist mm. all of the information that's given to us in the second act reiterates things that have already been established it's just a matter of like how did he get to know that and that's not something I need to know. I don't mm. need to have somebody sneaking around and picking up the information that's already been given to me ah. to understand that information better. So I feel like it was uh, Ryan Johnson, uh, See, who wrote and directed, <laughs> going a little over the top and trying yeah. to fill in gaps that were already filled. So okay. it becomes a little bit misshapen by the end. Uh, I-, I see your point, yeah. and I can see how you got there. And I unfortunately, it literally just came out. If it came out earlier in the year, uh-huh. maybe I'd feel more comfortable uh, sort of explaining why I don't have that takeaway okay but i don't have that takeaway and i think although there is some repetition in terms of specific information how do they get information mm. fine it is a mystery and you do want to show the audience that no i i know where all that happened and yeah. you can see it too if you need to hand it to you but i think what they're doing is that they're they're doing a really good job of reframing the story not just from and here's something here's an interesting plot element you didn't know about but also um it's not about who you thought it was about and i think mm. that's important uh, and I think that it, that's what it's really reshaping, and that's what will play, will pay off right. best later. I, I feel, I but feel, I, yeah. I think it worked. But I see your point. I, I feel like we got like the the DVD director's cut, ah. which has you know clearly has like a lot of extra scenes that weren't necessary, uh-huh. just sort of left in the in the final cut of the film. See, they could they could have trimmed it down; it would have been much stronger. Maybe, but I, I got to tell you something. As someone who really enjoys a good whodunit, mm. um, I want to see all the pieces, even if it is a little redundant. I want to mm. see. All the bees. I want to know that the clockwork mechanisms are finely tuned. Okay. So for me, I liked that stuff, and okay. I thought they, the, because of the way the narrative played, and because of the briskness of the pacing and the excellent yeah. cast, they got away with it. But I, I see, feel, again, yeah. I do see your point. The, the first part, the, because the first part was really brisk, and the ending was very brisk, and that middle part, it's like yeah. you lost it, you lost your stride. Ah. So uh, I, I like Glass Onion a lot, and I would recommend it to anybody, uh, yeah. just because I love all of the characters and the entire cast is great, yeah. but. It's it's not even on my runners. I can respect yeah. that. Okay, what's your what's your next pick? What do you want to talk uh, about? What do I want to talk about next? Um, this one is uh, uh, it, it's a mystery, but it's more mysterious. Uh, and this is a film that I gave a very high re- high review and have been thinking about a lot throughout the year. Uh, it is a Ruth Paxton's film, A Banquet. Oh, I didn't see uh, this. Okay. Yeah, A Banquet is a British horror movie, and. Uh, it taps into something very odd that I've uh, come up uh, against when reading essays by Ricky Jay. Uh, yeah. Ricky Jay used to have a radio show called Jay's Journals of Anomalies, and he liked to uh, find strange entertainments, things that people used to pay money to see, uh, things like 
people could hold their breath. Someone could spit out a frog on a stage, and that was entertainment. Somebody could, like, crouch down into a ball and, like, pull pull a ball around themselves and roll up a ramp. And that was the act. Like, unusual kind of circus act. Uh, he found acts of, like, people who can produce things out of their coats. And one thing uh, that he wrote about was uh, starvation mm. as entertainment. You'd go into a room and you'd see somebody who was uh, in a bed and hasn't eaten for a week. Yeah. And the idea is... Uh, Makes you the, think, doesn't it? Well, it, it, the idea is, uh, you know, they're deliberately giving up giving up something that a lot of people are, are scrabbling hard to get. You know, mm. they, they can't eat. They're not going to eat. And there's also mixed within all of that, you know, starvation is entertainment, a kind of... Uh, holiness that uh you know it's like a, a fat like a holy fast they're mm. fasting for spiritual reasons ridding oneself of the needs of the body so you can more focus on the needs of the soul that's a big part of the starvation yeah. and a banquet is kind of a modern version of that uh it's about a, a mom and her two daughters uh her <laughs> older teenage daughter goes to a party one evening looks up at the moon at night and passes out and when she wakes up, she's she's not hungry anymore. She doesn't want to eat any food. And they put a plate of food in front of her, and she kind of picks at it a little bit, and then puts the rest away. Mm. And after a you know a couple of days of this, the mother is of course getting a little concerned. Works tooth and nail. Works really really hard. You got to do it. You got to eat a single pea. And she ends up like choking down a single pea, and that's all she can eat. And there's a weird. Uh, mysterious element because this goes on for months and months and months mm. and the daughter isn't losing any weight. She's not starving. She's not wasting away. And the mother is really concerned about what's going on. There's something weirdly supernatural at yeah. work. Maybe there is something kind of spiritual at work. And the teenage daughter begins to say things like now that, I don't have food in my life and I'm, I can sort of sense myself essentially starving to death yeah. uh, that something's opening up in her mind and she can't really explain what that is. Yeah. And this is a film that delves very, very deeply into our relationships with food, our yeah. relationships with body images, our relationships with uh, the body versus the mind. And, stages it as this kind of almost supernatural horror movie. There's all of these really beautiful tableaus in this film of people just sort of lying in beds under single spotlights. It looks like an old, uh, like a wood, wood block from like an old book. Mm. And as, uh, so it, it's, it's tapping into this very strange, you know, esoteric thing that I know about, but I think it's also, uh, in a very real, very sort of, t uh, uh, poignant, poignant way, mm. uh, kind of looking at, uh, the Western world's obsession with a certain kind of meal habits. Mm. You know, when, when we sit down to eat, the kinds of things we need to eat, uh, how everything is so, uh, become so commercial and constructed in terms of our diets. And I feel like uh, our relationship to food isn't litigated a lot in yeah. cinema. And the, here's this strange contemplative horror movie, this weird mysterious thing that is actually trying to address that in some kind of a way. And ultimately comes down to, uh, you could see it as a metaphor for an eating disorder. 
Mm-hmm. You could see it as a metaphor for diet culture. Yeah. Uh, you could it see it as like a metaphor a, for uh, intergenerational trauma. That's also part of it. It sounds like a metaphor for, uh, mm-hmm. like, you know, you, you, you grow up Catholic, you hear stories about the saints who did, like, these really incredible, bizarre feats. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's like, kind of a miracle, but it's possibly just a form of, like, you know, extreme self-control or even mm-hmm. self-torture. And... Is that a good thing? Like that sounds like that's yeah. that that sounds like it's in there too a little bit. Yeah, this that this, spiritual this, this notion of yeah this very like Catholic notion of uh, uh, spiritual ascendancy through physical pain. Yeah, I know uh, there's like the monks who flagellate themselves, yeah. that kind of thing. Um, and that's not exclusive to Catholicism, but it's in a bit of Christianity all over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Interesting. So yeah, there's a lot of really fascinating things, and I haven't been able to properly unlock this movie. I need to watch it again, probably several times to mm. really kind of get its thesis. But it's 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 a mystery I've been happy to sort of go back to in my mind a couple of times. That's so awesome. well, I, I, I really recommend A Banquet. Well, I wasn't seeing that. I didn't see that one coming. Okay. I gotta be honest. And I didn't see it myself, so I have nothing to really add other than, shit, I guess I need to see that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, well, my next pick, I'll, I'll go with a uh, another really excellent and perhaps underseen uh, thriller, psychological thriller in this case, mm-hmm. uh, which I think has one of the best performances of the year, uh, maybe even two of them, uh, and that is a- Andrew Siemens's uh, Resurrection. Oh, I love Resurrection. Resurrection's great. Yeah. Everyone I know who's seen Resurrection thinks it's fantastic, and everyone I know who hasn't seen Resurrection hasn't seen Resurrection, and that's the problem. <laughs> uh, the film stars Rebecca Hall, who I'm increasingly convinced is mm-hmm. just like, every every year she'll just like, do a movie, prove she's one of the best actors alive, maybe ever, <laughs> and then everyone just in the industry just willfully ignores it, and it drives me up the fucking wall. How the hell are we not throwing awards at her the way we do someone like Kate Blanchett? I really she has somewhat odder taste in in material than some people, but yeah, I, I, between this, The Night House, Christine, she directed Passing. Great fucking movie. Should have been nominated for stuff. Yeah, I, I feel about Rebecca Hall the same way I feel about Ben Foster. Like, these are yeah. just, like, some of the best actors of their generation. And nobody's looking at them. Come, nobody's, when, yeah. when it comes time to start flinging around statues, nobody's yeah. looking at like, them. We appreciate the work that they do, but just never give, give them a statue. No, uh, the work no, she does ben, in Resurrection is incredible. Uh, ben Foster is an interesting case because he'll choose really bad projects from sometimes he picks some really bad like, crap he, he was yeah. in one of the worst movies of last year called medieval and uh no oh, I, I didn't dislike it the way you disliked it but it's not great it's, it's yeah it's a big mess of a flick yeah. he was also in that warcraft movie. like he wanted to be in a big blockbuster that warcraft movie is not warcraft. As, that warcraft movie is not as bad as people give it credit for it's it's, no, it's, it's worse it's generically <laughs> okay fantasy blockbuster filmmaking and everyone just yeah, people have a really harsh scale against which they judge fantasy movies yeah. and I don't know why but in any case it's really unforgiving big, and I don't forget big ridiculous looking orc things I like big ridiculous looking orc things anyway back to Resurrection Resurrection stars Rebecca Hall uh, as a single mother and a career woman and every, she's got her life together mm. everyone like people look up to her at work uh, she's got a healthy sex life even though she's sleeping with a married man but it's very just like we do this this is cool we're mm. all adults and we're all having a good time and that is that. Um, seems like she's got everything together. And then one day she's at a conference of some kind and she just spies across the room, big wide auditorium, one guy. Mm-hmm. And we know it's important because he's played by Tim Roth. <laughs> we, they're not just some random extra. And all of a sudden she starts 
breathing heavily and having like a bit of a panic attack. So we realize she has a history yeah. with this guy. And it's a really, really bad history. And for a while, the movie plays very coy about exactly what it was. We get the impression, clearly, they were in a relationship. And there was some kind of abuse, maybe physical, certainly psychological, uh, that has taken place. And she has extricated herself from this. And now he's back. And she's falling back into these really horrible uh, psychiatric patterns of behavior. And when we finally find out exactly what went down... Mm. Unbelievably stunning monologue. Yeah, a one-take monologue, <laughs> centerpiece of the movie. She gives an incredible performance, and the story she tells is so fucking bizarre <laughs> that I swear to God, my my jaw was slack. Mm. I was like, what? <laughs> oh, that's so fucked up. Oh, I don't do that very often. <laughs> the... Uh... The the weird, uh, vaguely perhaps supernatural thing that's going on in Resurrection. Yeah. Uh, she seems to think something supernatural has happened, yeah. which speaks a lot to her mental state. And yeah. I think what really sells a, a film like Resurrection is its utter uh, bleak and uh, a little bit too staggeringly real understanding of an abusive relationship. Yeah. Of the way... Uh, an abusive partner mm. can alter your perceptions yeah. and make you doubt the very nature of reality. Like we, the, the power of gaslighting, as like, it were. Like we meet uh, her. We know she's smart. We know she's capable. Mm. We know she's rational. But once she's back in with this guy who just knows her buttons, mm. he can convince her to do things she would normally like, never like, do. Like abs- They had this weird sort of absurd like cult like yeah. relationship where you know he was the the head of this cult that was just the two of them essentially yeah and so it's like for the good of the cult you need to do things like walk around with no shoes yeah. ever no shoes like why he decided that it's kind of arbitrary yeah but, but it's it's yeah. to show power yeah yeah and, so but she understands that there can be serious consequences if she doesn't and after a while i might as well wear no shoes mm. and once you start giving in to that it just changes her so completely one of the best parts of the movie is because she can't talk to anyone about this it's mm. what has happened to her is too bizarre and she blames herself too much for it she can't tell her teenage daughter mm. and if you look at the movie from the teenage daughter's perspective it's the story of a teenager whose mom is becoming dangerously unwell. Yeah. yeah. Her story is very, very sad, and we know more than she does, but it's still very, very sad, and for her, it's frightening on a totally different level. Yeah. And it's just an incredibly... So many psychological thrillers kind of stop at, wouldn't it be scary if... <laughs> like, wouldn't it be scary if like the person you were having an affair with tried to kill you was a werewolf yeah Yeah, or something like that you're like you know just like wouldn't it be scary if your biggest fear was in the thing that actually happened oh my god well yes it would be Mm. resurrection gets really deep down into like the rotting meat of the human psyche and if it wasn't for actors like rebecca hall and tim roth who again he's he's got to play like a monster but like he knows how to play that Mm. It wouldn't feel plausible. This would be laughable, mm. what's happening in this movie sometimes. But it is plausible, and it's terrifying. And yeah, she's incredible. Right. Uh, I, I take it a lot. Yeah. I, I like I love Resurrection. Um, yeah. And yeah, the, there's a, a pair of monologues, one from Rebecca Hall and one from Tim Roth, yeah. later in the movie, uh, 
which lays everything out and it's just you know stunning powerhouse theatrical acting um rebecca hall's monologue in in uh resurrection and Mia Goth's monologue in the movie Pearl yeah. are just masterclasses of acting. Yeah, that, that's a great movie. I almost made my list. Didn't quite. But Pearl, yeah, Pearl is also fantastic. Yeah, Pearl, like Pearl Pearl's not on my list. I love Pearl, though. Yeah. Um, that's how good this year was. A movie uh, as amazing as Pearl didn't make our list. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, great, great, great. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I love Resurrection. Um, uh, I'll, let's see. I'll segue in this way. Okay. Um, Resurrection... Uh, Pregnancy is a theme of resurrection. Yeah, yeah, an element, yeah. Uh, there was a, a rather deep and stirring drama that came out this year from France. Oh. Called Happening. Yeah, uh, good which, pick. <laughs> happening is excellent. Yeah. And Happening is an abortion drama. Yeah. Uh, and when it, I, when it also re- had the... Yeah. Uh, Rather good time. Well, you could call it good timing if you no, like. No, terrible timing. Uh, terrible timing. Um, to come out the same week that the American Supreme Court decided to just overturn Roe versus Wade, yeah, which made uh, abortion legal nationwide, and now it's like going on this weird state by state basis, and a lot of states are trying to overcriminalize uh, yeah. this health service. Like, like not not um, just say like, oh, it's bad in these situations. Uh, which even that's up for debate, uh, but basically trying to prevent people from crossing state lines yeah, and, like, and trying to like create these like mercenary laws that allow you to like rat out your baffling, neighbors. Yeah. You'll you'll get anybody can sue you. Anybody at all can yeah. sue you if they suspect, if they suspect you you're getting an abortion. Suspect, yeah. and there's no repercussions if they were wrong. Yeah. Absolutely terrible. And yeah, like the week that they like, I think it was the week that it leaked, not the week that it was oh, officially yeah, yeah. announced. Yeah, the, the draft had leaked yeah. out of the Supreme Court. But uh, yeah, that week, this French movie, which is, I believe, based on a book, and mm. it uh, takes place in the 1960s when uh, abortion was illegal in France. And it's about a, a, a young woman. She's a, she's a, she's in school. Yeah, it's a young woman named Anne. She's played by an actress named Anna Maria Vartolome. Yeah, she's great. She, and yeah, she's great in it. She, she, she's, she's a young person. She has sex. She has dreams of her future. And sure she's, enough, yeah, she she's, gets pregnant. Yeah, she's a college student. And yeah. her, her finals are coming up. And she's going out on dates. She gets pregnant. Uh, and the, the movie is actually pretty straightforward about her what she goes through oh yeah it's, it's just like a kind of like a slice of life yeah this is what it so. would be like so like in a in a country where abortion is just flat out illegal mm. how do you even ask about it yeah yeah who I, do you ask and if someone says i don't even want to have this conversation mm. who is going to stick their neck out for you and actually help you find one and, if you go yeah, to they, a doctor and ask them for some sort of assistance the doctor in in this particular film can just lie to you. Mm. And that's the the scene of the movie that completely blew my fucking mind. Sure. Just in terms of just how fucking Kafka-esque it is to simply be yeah, a the, woman in a, in, right. a, in, a, in a culture with this value system mm. that people the, uh, want to go back to. Terrifying. And and there is this, uh, this kind of it, it's a rather this horrifying downward arc that she has to follow. Yeah. She goes to the doctor. She doesn't get help from the doctor. She has to ask friends, but they're not really willing they, or they don't have the kind of information yeah. she's looking for. Uh, a lot of them are still sort of getting used to sex for the first time. Yeah. Much less know like how to 
you know, contact an, an abortion clinic. Yeah, this is the '60s. And, you don't even on, people aren't on the internet getting all their questions asked. They don't know what they're fucking doing. They don't understand. Yeah, like uh, she, the biology she has, of it. Or she yeah. asks one of her friends for like, oh, can you give me some some advice about sex? And she essentially like masturbates for her. It's yeah. like. That, that's not the advice you needed at that moment, no. but that's kind of like the, the atmosphere that they're in. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, there's like kind of an openness to it as well. So it should be talked about openly, yeah. but it isn't. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, she ends up uh, going to some pretty shady doctors and uh, or non-doctors. Uh, remember Peter Stormari from uh, Minority Report? Yeah, basically that, like guy. that Yeah. yeah. Like, I, I, I could sew up a dead cat inside of you and you wouldn't get an infection. Oh, God. Uh, Can we not be? Come on. It's a great line of dialogue. From Amazing. Minority, minority Report. Yeah, but, but yeah, and uh, the way things are sort of handled are rather unfortunately all too common. Yeah. Uh, and it takes place in the 60s. It didn't need to. It's just as relevant yeah. today. Yeah. I think uh, it took place in the 60s because it's a French film and abortion laws are different in France yeah. uh, than they are here but in, you in, could, uh, you, in the United States. You could set it. it it's the, here's the fucking thing about it. Like, if you set this in America, you could set it in the 1960s and it would be pretty similar. Yeah. Because we didn't have... Roe vs. Wade was in the early 70s. Early 70s, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, you could also set this... A couple of years in the future. <laughs> and it would feel like an Outer Limits episode. Yeah. And you would watch it and go, oh God, well we have to prevent that from ever happening. Meanwhile, everyone with a uterus around you is just like, you fucking oh, fuck suck. <laughs> fuck you. Mm. Like, it's just, but like, yeah, it's, it's got that, that extreme level of oppression that we're so used to seeing in movies played up yeah. as this some kind of worst case scenario. And happening just matter of factly says, that's the actual case scenario. Yeah. This is there's what a, some people want. I've, I've seen and what a lot of people yeah, are fighting not to have. There's a, a There weren't any this year, but in the last two years, there were a lot of road trip abortion movies. Yeah. There was uh, Unpregnant. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was that other one that was exactly like Unpregnant. Uh, <laughs> oh, what was the other? There was, uh, what was the other one? <laughs> there were two. And there was, the, there was the one with Lily I'd remember it if you uh, hadn't yeah. said Unpregnant first. Hold on. All right. I'm gonna see if I can find this out. Oh, it's called Plan B. Plan B. Yeah, good title. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there yeah. was um, uh, always, always, sometimes, ne- never, never, rarely, sometimes, always, never, rarely, sometimes, always. That was it. Yeah, um, yeah. Another that that's not a, a it's not a comedy. Comedy. That's you know, but it's a similar a similar drama, plot yeah. point. Yeah, uh, all of those have some sort of um, uh, sort of. Sort of like a, a way into uh, talking about abortion, to making mm-hmm. a drama about abortion. Yeah, uh, by finding this one like, part Okay, of it's, it, it's yeah. actually a road trip, but it's about an abortion. So yeah. it's a road trip movie. Because some people, were uh, because of the restrictive yeah. abortion laws in their state, even when Roe versus Wade, even yeah. before it had been overturned, there are some states that had been trying to restrict abortion laws until they were functionally yeah, uh, illegal. Like, oh, but because of these very bizarre draconian laws that only apply to abortion clinics, there could only be like two in this state. In the entire and, state. Yeah. And so going there is a road trip no and, matter and what. We're gonna, and, yeah. you know, anti-abortion activists are going to point like park RVs out front and say, no, come in here first and we're going to talk you out of it. Yeah. It's like, no, just go in. Go, and, uh, yeah. Uh, I... While we're on the topic, I highly recommend uh, a film called Lake of Fire. It's a, mm. a documentary oh, yeah. um, about abortion in the United States. Oh, yeah. and sort Tony of, K, right? Tony K did it. Yeah. And it's it's not just about abortion, though. It's kind of about the rise of uh, right, right-wing evangelical churches and yeah. how they came like, so important to politics 
fairly recently in the United States. Yeah. It's actually not been a big part of the fabric of America. Um, but yeah, I think happening is well is it an abortion drama that doesn't need like an entranceway. It's yeah. a film that's very explicitly and constantly about pregnancy, about abortion, about this young woman. Indeed, and, it's actually kind of an unremarkable yeah, story about abortion at the time. You know? But like, in yeah. so doing, you know, the more specific you make it, the more universal it becomes. So it yeah. feels like the universal abortion film. Yeah. Uh, it's it's rough. It's it a is rough, rough watch. Yeah, especially towards but the it's, end. But it's, it's incredibly really moving and it's incredibly too. important. And I, I think... Uh, everyone ought to go out and, and see a movie like that. Yeah, it's it's incredible. It just it was like my number 11. Okay. Like it was like right up there. It's so shockingly and upsettingly timely. <laughs> like weird timing. Yeah, like, yeah. Oh god, I'm amazing we're talking about it more honestly. Um all right. Well, um I don't have a good segue in terms of like subject matter, but my next film did take place in the 60s. <laughs> All right. Let's what go with that. Uh, this is a film that we reviewed uh, towards the beginning of the year. And this is the one where when it came out, I was like, eh, it's okay. And I have not been able to get it out of my head. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is Richard Linklater's Apollo 10 and a half. It's, it's on my list as a well. Space Age Childhood. Oh, how I've come to appreciate this film. <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad. Yeah. I'm so glad you have. <laughs> you know, I, I'm usually, you know, you're, you're a critic because you're reasonably confident in your opinion. Otherwise... Mm-hmm. You wouldn't be able to sort of justify your opinion. Uh, but, you know, every once in a while you surprise yourself. And it's like, okay, I had this sort of like, it's okay. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Apollo 10 and a Half is a rotoscope animated film um, by, from Richard Linklater. He's worked in this system before. He did Waking Life and mm-hmm. um, what's the sci-fi? A Scanner Darkly. A Scanner Darkly. Yeah. Um, and it is a slice of life story for the most part. It is basically Richard Linklater or his avatar uh, recalling very specific memories, not not necessarily interconnected, just like mm-hmm. over the course of like about a summer uh, when he was growing up in Texas in the 1960s uh, around NASA. And yeah, so it's like, okay, I remember my mom uh, like like ironing my sister's hand, yeah. hair. I remember I'm ironing my sister's hair. I remember uh, this one weird teacher who would come up with this bizarre torture device in order to like punish kids in the classroom by like making you stand on your tiptoes, drawing a dot on a wall, saying "Keep your nose there," and you could only do that by staying on your tiptoes so long that it hurt. Yeah. You know, like or just like, hey, this was the summer that one Johnny Cash song came out called a boy named sue and we all knew all the lyrics Mm. or here's that time my dad went to the gas station and insisted that they like shake the nozzle because he paid for that gas too (laughs) it's all these little moments and after a while it it feels just kind of formless and initially i thought i found that a little perfunctory okay uh and what i realized over time is that's exactly right that is exactly like and in a weird way because it also incorporates this one little bit of magical realism where, uh, or, or at least an element of the fantastic, where our protagonist, he's a young kid, he's like, what, 10? something? Ten and a half. Ten and a half. Uh, that's, mm-hmm. Yeah, that tracks. Uh, he's, he's, <laughs> he's approached uh, by some NASA guys in a clandestine way, and they said, okay, here's the deal. Uh, NASA screwed up, and we accidentally made a space capsule that was a little too small for an average human adult, and we can't throw all that money away, so we need to recruit a kid who does good in science. Mm. To, to, to go on a moon mission for us. <laughs> yes, so, secretly. Well, secretly. No one will so, ever know. So after school, or like a, dur- during summer vacation, yeah. you like, we'll occasionally go over to NASA and do like astronaut training. Yeah. And but, it's, like, but then he goes back. He's like, and he, and we also watched the Beverly Hillbillies. Wasn't that fun? 
There's, oh. there's this big montage where he's just talking about all the wonderful TV that he yeah. watched in the, in the early 60s. And, like, there's... I, I think part of this... This is one of the reasons why, like, advertising is so dangerous to movies. Because mm. the advertising leaned really hard on the space capsule thing. Yeah. Like, this is what the movie's about. And that's a great hook! Mm. That's a really funny idea. There's the, I even love the way they justify it. Where the kid tells the NASA guys... You you fucked up that bad. <laughs> um, they're just like, hey, you good at you good at science? Yeah, you get a hundred percent on every test. No, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> just bulletproof logic right there. I love it. Um, but yeah, it's not about that. It's actually all part of this rich tapestry. And as you watch the movie and you start seeing exactly why that subplot is in here, yeah, which they don't come out and say, but it is pretty clear by the end of it. Yeah, yeah. you realize that what he is after is not unlike something that Stan- that uh, Terrence Malick was after in Tree of Life, mm. which is this whole I'm cr- I'm capturing the miasma of memory, mm. and the miasma of memory isn't exclusively memory. It's it not, is yeah. often our fantasy. It is often the way that we fancifully remember things, especially when we're young and imaginative. Mm. Yeah, and, and we there's that wonderful shot in Tree of Life, yeah. which is like a, like crawling around, like a baby's eye view, and yeah. like they're under a table, and you see a chair move on its own. And yeah, no one. I around, think yeah, no like, that kind of like explicit memory. And I feel like yeah, uh, Apollo Ten and a Half is very much boomer nostalgia. Oh yeah. Uh, it's, you know, of this recent wave of boomer nostalgia movies we've been getting, you know, your licorice pizzas and your mm. Fablemans. Oh, easily uh, my favorite. Th- this one's the, the best yeah. one because it's actually very explicitly about memories. Mm. It's, it is nostalgic and, uh, it's, it's fun. not about weaving a myth. It's not about no, trying to, no, trying to it's... elevate anything. It's actually, it, again, so many of the memories are really perfunctory. They're, they're kind of mundane. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of them are like relatable on a ground level sort of yeah. way. Like, I didn't have an editing bay in my bedroom no. like Spielberg did, but uh, I admit I played prank phone calls sure. uh, like they do in the movie. Yeah. Uh, and like when you're watching a TV show and there's something weird about it, it's like, oh, look, the monkeys are on the Johnny Cash show. Where's Peter Tork? It's like Peter Tork wasn't in the band at that point. Yeah. It's like the other three monkeys are on there. Yeah. It's this weird moment of memory that you recall. You recalled being baffled that Peter Tork wasn't on television. Yeah. Uh, and it felt so important at the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And oh. and again, a lot Dante of Dante is taking a nap in your in your jacket. Oh, that, that's fine. He can take a nap in okay. my jacket. Dante's our cat, by the way. Not like Dante Alighieri just showed up. It's <laughs> <No. laughs> just like, oh, do, do you mind if I... Yeah, go ahead, Dante. It's fine. Sorry, did you lose Beatrice? <laughs> Dante is a divine comedy joke. Yeah. Uh, That's a... why it was so funny. Because <laughs> it's divine comedy. It was comedy. divine comedy. Oh, God. <laughs> no, I I really, I also really love Apollo 10 and a half. I feel like Richard Linklater knows uh, sort of how to capture the texture of childhood. Because he did one yeah. called Boyhood as well. Yeah. Uh, a film that... Uh, he, I, I like less than this. This is actually my favorite of the two. I, I, I like them both. I think they're both... They're really both good. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm just fond, much I, fond of Linklater in general. That's um, how much I love this one is my point. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, it's to, to your point. It's not mythologizing memory. It's simply sharing memories. And if you have those memories, great. It's going to be fun. You're going to yeah. kind of a good time relating to that. Or you'll have a memory, kind of like it, something that's uh, kind of relatable. And sure. the, the reason it was uh, animated uh, is, I think, because uh, Richard Linklater was able to more accurately recreate the '60s by just drawing it behind his actors. Sure. So it actors, that saves yeah. you a lot of money. Yeah. yeah. You so, can just do it in any house, and then just. Oh, that's not in the sixties. Just leave that part out. Yeah, then yeah. You know, they can change the costumes. Yeah, and, very effective. Uh, and and those of like cute little moments uh, where we get to uh, laugh at all the characters' foibles. Um, sure. Hey, hey, mom, is that a hippie? 
yeah, that's a hippie. Lock car door. And it's like... <laughs> Little uh, detail is that a hippie? That's not a hippie. He's wearing bell bottoms. Oh, yeah, then that's a hippie. That's a hippie, yeah. Lock. <laughs> like, she's afraid of the hippies. Yeah. Uh, there's only a very slight... Because the main character is this little kid. He's in this factory yeah. town. He's around all, you know, all of his peers and all the fathers in the town work for NASA. Yeah. Uh, he's really uh, isolated from a lot of uh, the rest of the world. So when uh, there's like riots or violence on television, it's it's something he sees through TV. It's yeah, not something it's, that's it's, really part it's of his life. It's outside. It's not in the bubble. So, yeah. I, I'm glad Linklater thought to include that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's not ignoring the rest of the world. Just yeah. when you're ten, it's not. You, you're, you're not you are, thinking about. Yeah, you are separated from the rest yeah. of the world. It's, it's like they always say, like, oh, why can't things be like less political? Like, or, like when we were kids, like. No, it was. You were just a kid. Yeah, you, you, you were less political as you a kid. You were not yeah. thinking on that wavelength. It all was, always, constantly. There were always these elements. It was always these things happening all the time. You not being aware of it did not mean it didn't happen. You were not an ostrich. <laughs> that will be the name of my book. You are not an ostrich. You are not an ostrich. Yes, uh, I, I. But yeah, that's also on my top ten list. I love right. Apollo ten and a half. All right. Well, um, I, since that was on yours as well, I guess I'll take the next one. Right. Um. Okay, again, I don't really have a good segue. Um, specificity is good. <laughs> oh, okay. You know, you, know what, you know what? I like specificity. I'm, I'm it's great. following you. When you've got uh, so much detail in your movie that you just feel like you're there. Mm-hmm. And the, the the nearly three hours just fly by oh, God. in Todd Fields' Tar. <laughs> um Tar is my number one. Oh, uh, shit. Yeah, oh, you, man. You kind of skipped ahead there oh, for me. Oh, no. How well, could I have known? It's fun. Well, you know what? I've done this to you in the past. Tell you what. So, why don't we, why don't we, why don't we uh, kick it ahead? Okay. We'll, we'll kick, kick it, it ahead. We'll, right. we'll just we'll, we'll do that when we get to the number one. We'll save it for last. All right. But I do love Tar to Pieces, and we'll, 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 we'll do that. All right. Um, okay. Why don't you take the next one, though? So, okay. I fucked um, up so bad. I'm going to choose one I know you didn't pick. Because, oh, shit. Because nobody saw this movie. Okay. Um, well, I mean... Few people saw this movie. It's not. It's not one of the ones everyone's talking about. No. Um. This is an American film done by uh, a Norwegian director named Ninja Thyberg, uh, and it's called Pleasure. Uh, I've heard of it. I didn't see it. Yeah, Pleasure uh, is. Or excuse me, uh, Ninja Thyberg is Swedish, not Norwegian. Okay. Apologies for that. Uh, Pleasure is a film about the modern porn industry. Huh. Oh, yeah, a, I remember you reviewing yeah, this on the show. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, it's about a young woman uh, who's going by the name Bella Cherry, and she is attempting to break into the porn world uh, in in the modern day in 2021 yeah. when the film was made. And what a grueling, dull job it is. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and it's a job. It's 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 it's, not, it's, it's not fun. a job. And uh, so like er, early on, uh, she goes to like an industry party, and she sees this uh, like glittering, like one of the biggest stars, like the biggest studio in the adult film world, and their star player is is there, and she aims to be the next star player. Mm. Uh, I, I'm I'm thinking it was like an allusion to uh, Sasha Gray. Who was, mm. uh, if if you recall, like in the early two thousands, yeah. Sasha Gray uh, was the big hit. She, star. she was the big hit adult star, and she was in uh, some non adult features as well. Uh, Steven Soderbergh's yeah. The Girlfriend Experience, most yeah. notably, but other things as well. Yeah, she, and she yeah. she was around, but she was like a known quantity outside of the adult film. World. A big breakout star. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I'm I'm guessing that's sort of the the type of star that that the main character of Pleasure wants to be, uh, and. 
she uh, she needs a hook, right? In order to uh, sell yourself as a star, you need to stand out from all the other people who are in the industry. She's just an amateur. Uh, and it turns out, just like if you want to get a job in an office, if you want to get a job uh, you know, as a writer, as any kind of artist... You gotta pay your dues a little bit. You gotta work on spec a little bit. You gotta do a lot of stuff for free. Um, the film is actually uh, comes with an introduction, letting you know uh, the director and the actress are both there. And they're saying everything's on the up and up because there's gonna be some things in this film that look a little bit rough. Um, so in order to sell herself, she says, "I'm gonna do rough stuff. That's gonna be my selling point. I want to do rough sex scenes." Mm. Uh, when she makes a friend in the industry, uh, he hooks her up with a bondage session, tying mm. up and whipping. Uh, and it turns out the bondage uh, filmmaking is the cleanest, most friendliest, yeah. uh, most responsible yeah. uh, that you could ever hope. It's like it has like to checking be. on them all the time. Yeah. It's like, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit you, but I'm going to do it three to like everybody's really communicative. Yeah. So she says, I want to go back. She goes back to her agent friend says, I want to do something even rougher. That was a very positive experience. And then she throws them into a basement room with two guys, a cameraman and nobody else. And, uh, and that doesn't go so well. I can imagine yeah. not. Uh, a, a lot of this is a grind. It's having an Instagram account. It's about you yeah. know selling you know, selling yourself through uh, you know it's like an independent contractor more yeah. or less. Uh, you have to you know come up with a pitch and constantly be on the job twenty four hours a day. And uh, this is one of the like frankest, most open films you'll see about modern porn. Mm. Uh, it's not at all titillating it's not at all fun like it is kind of fun Mm -hmm. like the way a job might be fun yeah but it's still a job and uh you know the way she has to sort of protect her reputation and maybe look out for some of her friends who are also as you know her roommates are also aspiring adult Mm. actresses uh and it completely demystifies anything you might think about the porn industry uh, Good. Yeah, very frank and open about sex. It's about how dull the industry is. And at the end of it, you're going to want to start paying for your porn. Yeah, you really should. Por- not all the porn you find on the internet is going to be ethical porn. You don't mm. know where some of that stuff came from. You don't mm. know if somebody ripped it off or, you know, yeah. somebody's somebody's getting millions of views and is not getting a cent yeah, for people that are, stuff. People are working extremely yeah. hard. To provide adult entertainment, and uh, sadly, thanks largely to uh, the preponderance of free streaming services, mm-hmm. like the the industry just, just fell go, apart. Go up to um, yeah. uh, PornTube, YouPorn, all all of those websites. Yeah, there was just... a brief period where they were trying to sort of fight back against that by adding more production value. We're gonna have mm-hmm. bigger movies, you know, like mm-hmm. more like more this, like movie parodies. The, and the stuff. Pirates era. Yeah, or... well, Pirates, but even but that was actually early on. I'm talking about later on when they started doing more elaborate oh, like, parodies of familiar products. Oh, Right. Like, this, like, this ain't the Brady Bunch. This yeah. ain't Spider Man or that kind of thing. And they would they would look good actually. Mm. They're like the costumes would be pretty impressive. Like they were moneyed productions. But after a while, yeah, even that didn't do much. So yeah, it's it's a really rough industry right now. And I haven't seen that movie. Yeah, uh, I'm heartened to know that someone made a film about the adult industry that didn't just attempt to demonize it. No, no. It's no, just like treat it, it very matter-of-fact. It's, That's it's a good very, idea. It's matter-of-fact, and it also points out because uh, so little of it is overseen by, like, responsible production companies, yeah. a lot of the people you might see in, in your porn scenes are not having the best time. They're, yeah. not, they're not doing it for the glamour. It's not fun. Yeah. And 
that yeah, this is a movie that explores that as well. It it really goes into the porn industry. It is not at all judgmental about yeah. the porn industry or about sex work. Uh, it's actually yeah, very very down to earth about it. Um, so yeah, at the end of the day, if uh, if there's a star you like. Pay for their OnlyFans. Yeah. Give them money directly because mm-hmm. that way you know where your money's going. Or at least sign up for for whatever like production company they're working for. They probably have a dedicated site. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. like just seriously pay pay for your art, even your porn, even your porn. Yeah. I, I some people are like ah, oh, it's so shameful. I don't want it on my credit card account. Uh, no one's looking. No one cares. No. Just just seriously. <laughs> people are working so here, hard. Here, here, here's a thought. <laughs> if 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 you're running a like a, an adult website that takes subscriptions uh-huh. uh except like starbucks gift cards yeah that's not that's <laughs> not like, great that doesn't exchange like, well but the problem is that uh, there are like credit card companies that like will change their services or banks that will change their services mm. explicitly to exclude sex workers because well, they don't want to be associated it's money it's yeah, the simple it's, it's basic transactional ridiculous. element of our economy it's ridiculous. Anyway, it's it's actually kind of unexpected that we both have films about kink okay. very explicitly on our on our list, uh, and not a lot of people saw yours, and not a lot of people saw mine either. All right, uh, is a romantic comedy called Love and Leashes. Oh, I didn't see Love and Leashes. It came out so. earlier this year. It just kind of blipped onto Netflix. Okay, just here it is on Netflix, and it didn't get a big fanfare. Most people didn't talk about it, and I happened to run across someone on Twitter saying, hey, uh, or, or this is actually like a pretty good representation of a BDSM relationship, like a healthy one. Mm. So yeah, we watched it and it's great. Like it's actually one of the better romantic comedies I've seen in a really, really long time. Um, you may be familiar with the romantic comedy trope of people entering into a fictional relationship that a great, that gradually becomes real. Mm. Pretend to be my boyfriend and eventually we'll fall in love. Uh, pretend to be my date for this wedding and over the course of the wedding party we will fall in love. Uh, here uh, it is uh, a Korean story about uh, two co-workers. Uh, he is considered like the golden boy of the office and she is not. Uh, and she's got a bit of a crush on him but she discovers quite by accident mm. uh, that he is very specifically into being domed. Okay. He's a submissive. And it's very important to him. It is very uh, much part of his identity. But in his previous relationship, his previous girlfriend found out about it and kink shamed him so hard that he no longer likes himself mm. and is uncomfortable with this part of his identity. When she finds out and expresses not, you know, like, hey, let's date, but is actually just kind of interested and respectful... He asks her to be his platonic dom. Okay. So I would like you to do the things that would dom me, you know, tie me up, mm. tell me to bark like a dog, or, or the various things that he's into. But, uh, and but, but no sex. No sex. This okay. is not a sexual relationship. This is not a romantic relationship. And because she herself has felt kind of repressed in her office environment and in her life and hasn't mm. been able to be the confident person that she's always wanted to be, she decides, okay, let's explore this. And they do so responsibly. Mm. They uh, uh, 
have long conversations about what is okay, what is not okay, but in a much more amiable, likable way than the than the uh, Fifty Shades movies, which <laughs> treat it like this weird, like deal with the devil in a black room. Like it's such <laughs> those, a fucking bizarre vibe. Those, those Fifty Shades movies are so terrible. They're very irresponsible about like, kink. They really are. They, well, they do not understand how it works at all. I, uh, the Fifty Shades movie. We have a um, an adult superstore here in Los Angeles called the Pleasure Chest. Yeah, it's uh, one of the better adult superstars you'll encounter. Uh, and in the front of the store, mm-hmm. they have the bachelorette party stuff. Yeah, like, they, the, the stuff that you don't have to be like the, the stuff that isn't necessarily adults, adults only. Yeah, there might be some like, like, well, like some uh, postcards with boobs on them, but nothing yeah, too harsh. Uh, and, and you know, like playful things like pasta in the shape of penises. Yeah, like uh, gag uh, yeah. gifts. Yeah, a exactly. Lot of them. Yeah. And and, so, and you know, maybe like uh, little personal toys. You can or, or yeah, some yeah. lacy under things, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. The. The the chains and the leather and the heavy equipment yeah. and the thirteen pound dildos. Those, those are in the back. Those are in the back. <laughs> you go yeah. up a little staircase. That's it's it's, where it's like, not that... creepy or nothing. It's just no, no. those are behind that curtain. You just go up over there. Yeah. It's, it's not like it's not like you know Babylon. Like those are in the back. Like you no, know, no, no. It's, it's, that's where the alligator. It's actually is. very bright and friendly it's in that. Store, very cheerful it, story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I felt like Fifty Shades of Grey were for people who never went into that back <laughs> room. It's like I'm interested in kink, but I'm just gonna peek. Back mm-hmm. there, I'm no, look through that doorway and see what's I agree. Back there. There's clearly an interest in it, yeah. but the movie is only interested in this. It's not even a fairy tale. It's not even like this idealized version of it. It's just ill. It's just ill researched, mm-hmm. and because it was so successful, they wanted to adapt it, you know, directly to the screen. And as a result, a lot of people got. I mean, it's not like a hundred percent off. Like it's not like the exact opposite of the way it is, mm-hmm. but it's also wrong. Yeah, and it's not necessarily instilling at people who the casual audience doesn't know how this works, and they don't understand how normal it can be. Yeah, to have kink in your relationship. So this is a movie about how there's nothing wrong with that. Mm. That can be healthy. Really that can common. be very positive, yeah. <laughs> and it's something that people can have meaningful conversations about and embark upon in a responsible healthy manner and yeah of course they fall in love over the course of it that's what we want <laughs> of course of course they do that's what we're here for but over the course of it if, and by the way that structure works great that's I, a lot of the best rom-coms work like that that's fine the the cast is wonderful and on top of everything it actually does a, something that very few rom-coms do which is a acknowledge sex mm-hmm. and have it actually be about sexual uh, uh, behavior and sexual uh, 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 not really having sex for most of it but basically acknowledging that that's part of the relationship mm. treating it in a way that is alluring but is also not just prurient we're not here just to watch a bone or anything like that it's like no it's like you know what if you if you, if you had no interest this is what it's kind of like doesn't seem that bad right mm. maybe you're interested you should check it out like that kind of thing it's a very positive movie and on top of it all, it's just one of the best rom-coms I've seen in a really long time. Oh, that's sweet. So okay. it's just a, it just reminds you that there are places for even the most familiar genres to go. Mm. And it's just this corner they don't bother to look at. And it's already there in a lot right. of relationships. Let's just have more rom-coms about people exploring parts of themselves that rom-coms are usually too milk toast mm. to even acknowledge exists, let alone explore. Mm. And if you do so in this healthy and positive a manner... You could do a lot of good. Yeah, let's, I, let's normalize some of this stuff. It's great, lovely film. I I saw uh, 
two romantic comedies that I completely forgot about. Mm-hmm. Um, one was called Ticket to Paradise. Oh, I didn't see that one. Uh, which is George Clooney and Julie yeah. Roberts, big movie stars. Yes. Yeah. Uh, they have a divorced couple who hate each other and they go to their daughter's wedding and, of I... course, they kind of reconnect. Um, yeah. And, and, Fine. And, and now you've seen the movie already. I just described yeah. it to you. You know what it is. <laughs> Nothing special. Uh, the other one had uh, uh, Owen Wilson mm. and Jennifer Lopez. Yeah, it's called Marry Me. It's called Marry Me and they, she's a big pop star. Uh-huh. He's like a... a Normal guy. He's a junior high school teacher. He's a junior high school teacher. And he's taking his daughter to her concert. Her concert was supposed to be a big event because she was going to get married like on stage. But Jeff then he, Lopez is, yeah. but then she finds out she he like cheated on her, and so she says he, he's not coming. But by God, I'm marrying someone today. So she just pulls a random guy out of the audience. <laughs> it happens and to be Owen Wilson. Wilson. So they get uh, married, and then they fall in love. Uh, yeah. You saw that movie now. You, you, you know, know what? I described it. Now you've seen that I, movie. I don't dislike so, that movie. That's a cute movie. They're both cute. I didn't see they're, Ticket to Paradise, but yeah, Mary's fine. But, you know, but, uh, you know I, I understand that a big appeal of romantic comedies is their banality. You sure. want them to hit certain beats. We it's, go there um, to, be, to be reassured that's, that you, love is nice. They're very similar to slasher films in that regard. Mm-hmm. You want slasher films to kind of cover similar ground each time. Maybe do something a little bit novel. Uh, you want the same thing a different way. Yeah. So it's nice to know that uh, romantic comedies do occasionally, hmm. very occasionally, endeavor to do something a little bit different. And do it great. And, that, and, and, and that's good to hear. And embark on something difficult. Like there are major motion pictures, like huge mm. moneyed motion pictures that try to cover the topic of BDSM and have done it so badly <laughs> or have done it with such a with such a weirdly tainted perspective. Mm. Uh, and yeah, this one's, this one's yeah, lovely. Please see it. It's great. Uh, uh, I'll have to catch up with that one. Yeah. yeah um, I'm reminded of the film Secretary. Uh, Secretary sure. was a, yeah. a, f- a film that was about kink. Um, mm-hmm. Different, I, I, different vibe. Different vibe. It's a little yes. bit, a little bit uh, more aggressive. It's a lot about yeah. depression. I feel like that film is very fair about kink. It's very kink positive. I think for the most part. But I think it gets depression very wrong. Yeah, I think it's fair. Which is a, a little kind of uh, brings it down in my estimation. But, yeah, I, I don't disagree. Um, this is this one is much more positive overall as a vibe. Okay. So I think it's yeah, I, like I, think, I think that's healthy too. Okay. All right, what you got next? Uh well, I have nothing that anything else that has like kink in it or okay. or even sexuality. romance or comedy. Uh No, you know what? I'm going to go full bore in the opposite direction. I'm going to oh, go shit. I'm going to go to a film for kids. Ah. It's a very sweet little film. Aww. About a little shell named Aww, Marcel. It's a cute it's movie. And he wears shoes. It's called Mar- Marcel the Shell with Shoes On. Marcel the Shell with Shoes On is such a strangely delightful and yet peculiar concept. Yeah. I'm surprised to learn that it was invented recently. Yeah. It feels like a French novel that came out in like 1904. Yeah. It's like a little little shell, like some like everyone knows that the everyone knows about the little prince, but like this one got overshadowed. But it's so cute, mm. and everyone really loved it in France. I never quite made it over here, but it, we made a movie out of it. It, it, it feels like, it feels yeah. like that. Like it has some. It's a concept with some dust on it, but it's yeah. a new concept. And it's lovely. Um, it's such a great film. It's, oh, it's it didn't make my top sound, but I'm glad you All picked right. it because it's great. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's directed by Dean Fleischer Camp, who's also in the movie. Uh, Jenny yeah. Slate. Uh, not only plays Marcel, but invented the character. Yeah, they they were uh, coming up with like a like a YouTube series. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and they just uh, she was coming up with a little like a like a little kid voice. Yeah, Jenny Slate was, and she's like, my name is Marcel, and yeah. I am a shell. Like she's just sort of yeah. noodling and, around in the camera. And to be clear, idea. we're talking about like a little it's shell, a, not like a, a huge sea, conch, like a little seashell. It's shell. a little tiny seashell. It has a googly eye in its hole, just one yeah. big eye, and it has, it has two a little shoes. little pencil mouth, and yeah, two little shoes, and it walks around and. Yeah. The plot of the movie is uh, the Dean Fleischer Camp character is has uh, rented a house like as an Airbnb. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, because like and he like broke up with his he girlfriend. Up with his girlfriend. He needed a place to stay. And uh, and the house that he moved into just happened to have this little living anthropomorphic shell living yeah. there with his grandmother, who is played and uh, played and voiced by Isabella Isabel Rossellini, who's also a shell. She's and so great. <laughs> She's really wonderful. <laughs> Marcel is a pure and beautiful soul. Yeah. Uh, he describes his everyday life. It's about, oh, we have to fight with bugs to get things out of the garden, and I'll have to, to watch 60 minutes with my nana in order to yeah. climb. I, I dip my feet in honey so I can climb up the wall. He's like, got, he's got you're, such a... And you're weeping at how sweet and innocent this creature is. He's got is. such a tiny existence, and yet it is full of incident and magic. Like, he has to, like, spill honey to, like, put it on his shoes so he can walk on walls in order to get things. Yeah. Order. Like, every single daily job is, like, really, really hard when you're a shell with shoes on, <laughs> which it would be. Yeah. There's a great... And, ba- it, and, the, and so, but we find out that, like, there used to be more of them. But well, when more, the people... More shells, yeah. But when the people who own the house, like, had, like, a big breakup, uh, one guy packs really fast and he ended up packing all the other shells with him. Mm. So they're off in some other house and they don't know where it is and they're going to try to find that. Mm. And there's this great bit where he's just like, uh, okay, yeah, so how many, uh, we, we can find them. How many other houses can there possibly be? Like Aww. dozens? Hmm. Millions. Uh, oh. oh. Well, we should start there's looking a, soon. <laughs> as a, and yeah, there's a really sweet scene where um, uh, Marcel is taken into a car for the first time. And of course, car-sick. and gets car sick, like bar, and it's like a little pea sized drop of yeah, bar. Yeah, yeah it's, oh, not even a, it's not even a mess. <laughs> yeah. It's like you would never I'm, notice I'm, if we had I'm, pointed I'm, it. I'm really embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yeah, this kind of heartbreaking moment where he's driven up onto a hill and he looks out over Los Angeles. He realizes and how like, big the world I is. He realize how big it was. And, and, and you're crying God, and you're crying and crying. But it's funny. It, it's, it's not just sad, it's really funny. It, it's funny, and it has a, a certain kind of uh, melancholy that kids can relate to. Yeah. A certain kind of... Uh, the the conflict between the smallness of the world, as it is when you're a kid, going back to, to Apollo 10 and a half. There you go. And the... Uh, and the enormity of how big the world actually is, how complex things are yeah. as, as you grow older. And you're experiencing that all the time. Uh, it's not like you have a single catharsis. Oh, no, the world is yeah. bigger. You have, we, like, maybe big ones throughout your life. But yeah, it's those also ones you probably yeah. glom onto in therapy, but, like, really, it's <laughs> every single moment <laughs> well, in your life. Is I was going to say, like, you go to college and you meet, you know, new, new people for the first time. You read new well, books for the think, first time. I was just thinking about how, like, you know, like, when you're a kid, there are certain incidents that are traumatic and they stand oh, yeah. out and they're sort of representative of, okay, like, you know, I have a, you have a pet who passes away and yeah, yeah, that becomes, like, your first big experience with mortality but it's mortality is all around you yeah. and you're becoming more and more aware of these larger concepts over time it just sort of solidifies yeah. in these key moments and Marcelo's there's some there's some key moments he goes through some really difficult mm-hmm. uh coming of age type moments in this movie and they're so sad but it's also very very sweet because he perseveres and he's just this little shell and he's just a yeah, little shell with shoes. Just a little shell and yeah, he's got his, shoes. Just this, this pure, yeah, this pure little gentle creature he's got and shoes. Uh, and doesn't understand. Uh, he gets really annoyed at this idea of internet fame. That's also a theme of this movie. Oh yeah, he's, he, uh, he, they put his uh, videos online uh, and he's incredibly confused uh, by the whole business. Yeah, and when what, he sees the comments, is, he's yeah. he's like, oh, we, uh, oh, we don't know. really need all this. Dude. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love Marcel, just the character as a creation, uh, and I love this movie. I love the attitude of this movie. I love how how gentle it is. It's 
uh, I'm not going to compare it directly to the red balloon, uh, mm. but it does have that kind of, kind of that kind of yeah, like this this weird sort of peculiar and very gentle feeling mm-hmm. to it. No, there's a certain there's a certain group of kids movies that are magical and transportive, and yet they feel very relatable. But very specifically, and most kids movies are afraid to do this. Uh-huh. They're melancholy. Mm. They they understand that kids feel melancholy. Melancholy feels like a very mature emotion. It's not. No, it's no, just it's... a general understanding yeah. that things around you are not great. And, and, and that, a lot of that melancholy is, uh, to be fair, based in nostalgia by an adult filmmaker. True. Just looking back on sort of a lost childhood. True, but I think the fact that so many of us watch this movie and feel that too speaks to the idea that it is not a highly individualized experience mm. and that we all understand what it is like to... Be small in a big world, feel overwhelmed by it, yeah, and have these moments in life where you're suddenly, and this happens in Marcel the Shell, although we'll all be vague, you you have to grow up mm. all of a sudden sometimes, yeah, in ways that you're really not ready for, and sometimes uh, you learn lessons, sometimes you learn the wrong lessons, and that happens in Marcel the Shell as well, mm-hmm. and you have to sort of readjust your life and your perspective. And, yeah, there's some kids' movies, Red Balloon's a great example, which capture this. There's an element of loneliness to the Red Balloon. He wouldn't need the Red Balloon if he had more going on in his life. <laughs> um, and, yeah, Marcella Shell is wonderful. I'm glad you picked it. It's great. Right. Um, I My next pick is my pick for the feel-good film of the year. And okay. that's not necessarily something that's always going to end up on a top ten. Mm-hmm. Sometimes those are just frothy and light, and that's nice. But this one is made with such... Absolute care and loveliness, and such a and such a almost almost Capra esque understanding that you cannot have heroic catharsis without working away through something miserable. Okay, uh, and that is Mrs. Harris goes to Paris. <laughs> I, I caught up with this one as well. Oh, did you? Yeah. Did you? What? You, what? Did you like it too? Uh, I, I did. I liked okay. it. Okay, yeah. not as much it's, as me, I guess. I, it, it's it's sweet. Okay, it's, it's it's sweet, but it's slight. It's um, slight, but it works for me. So, right. Mrs. Harris goes to Paris. Stars Leslie Manville as the title character. Uh, she's a cleaning woman in uh, Britain in the nineteen fifties. And, and it's a remake, isn't it? Is it is there... a remake. It was it was originally a novel, uh, and then they I think they might have done like one in Europe, but there was a TV movie in the nineties starring Angela Lansbury as, as Mrs. Mrs. Harris. Yeah. Uh, although that one was called Mrs. Harris goes well, to Paris. That is so with the, an apostrophe. With an apostrophe. Mrs. It's... Harris goes to Paris. Yeah. yeah. And the plot is is uh, pretty simple, really. Um, Mrs. Harris is a cleaning lady. She's poor. Uh, but while she is cleaning uh, the, the house of one of the wealthy people she works for, she encounters a Dior dress. And the, the way the movie films this Dior dress is like... Um, it's the way that, like, James Cameron shoots the super whale in Avatar 2. <laughs> it's just like, oh, my God, look at that. overwhelming living creature. The Brontosaurus, or the, uh, the uh, what do you call it? The Brachiosaurus in Jurassic Park, that mm. first big reveal. That's this dress. And it just glows. It's so gorgeous. And she's absolutely ravished, just, just taken by it. And she realizes she's got to have one. Mm. She has no occasion to wear it. She has nowhere to go in a Dior dress. It's like a, it's like the fanciest article of clothing you can get. But she wants it, and she's going to work for it, and she pushes everything she's got into just getting this. And the movie does not race through that. It is very difficult for her to acquire the funds necessary to purchase a Dior dress. Well, and she, uh, she's so inexperienced in yeah. sort of like this level of consumption. Yeah. That she doesn't understand she can't just sort of go in 
pick it off a yeah. hanger and just put it in her bag and take it home. She saves the money. A few like circumstances occur that like almost deny her the opportunity, but then they work out. She's able to go to France. She's going to go to Dior, and she's basically just going to say, "Oh, I want that one," and I'll and I have it. I'll pay. I'll pay you right now. I know I'm. I know I look poor, but I don't care. I have the money, and she doesn't realize that. They, they tailor them, and that takes a really long time. That's why they're so special, mm. is because they're made to you. And she didn't budget for that, and now <laughs> she's stuck in France, couch surfing, basically, just trying to make do and get this dress that she wants so uh, incredibly poorly. And I love all the detail that they add about, uh, about Christian Dior, because these kinds of really high-end... Uh, uh, items mm. really only cater to a certain clientele, the super wealthy. And what they acknowledge right up is super wealthy aren't used to paying for shit. <laughs> and actually, when when she shows up and like there's um oh who is it? It's um uh, Isabel Huppert. Oh, yeah, uh, it's yeah. wonderful as the person who's like at the front of the store and like trying to trying to shoo this she's undesirable kind of, out of there. Like you look she, at, she's the the best we're getting at the villain of the piece. Yeah, she's she's an obstacle more than a villain. She's actually we find out more about her. She's actually not a terrible person, but um, she wants. To, th- this is not the Christian Dior look, and we have fancy people coming. And you look at your clothes are have been worn before, so you need to get out of here. And meanwhile, the accountant is there, like, uh, no, she's our most important client. She has cash. <laughs> she wants to pay oh. us cash on the barrel head and not in credit. We desperately need Mrs. Harris. So the the whole sweet story of Mrs. Harris getting a dress and you know find, yeah. finding a, a little bit of personal growth in you know, yeah. purchasing this article and going through the process yeah, of what it is, yeah. having doing to stay something in for Paris, herself, yeah. you know, that really uh, empowers her. That, yeah. That's sort of like the spine of the story. Um, what's going on throughout the entire background is a rather uh, stringent history of of Dior as a company. Yeah, what it was going through. Uh, trying to um, wrestle with this notion of uh, wealthy exclusivity versus uh, actual accessibility by a great number of people. And indeed, just financial success, yeah. which is becoming more complicated in the mid-20th uh, century. And it's way more interesting here than it was in House of Gucci. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, that's a big part of that movie, House of Gucci, as well. But House of Gucci is a fucking soap opera. Uh, and I mean that in every part. It's, it's a fucking soap opera. <laughs> Uh, Mrs. Harris goes to Paris is uh, like Marcel. It's just it's very gentle. Very gentle. It's, it's yeah. if you love the Paddington movies, you will love this. I really it's do. That, yeah, it is it's that. that, that kind of, it's that um, level of reassuring. And again, you have to work for it. Mrs. Harris has to work for it. But uh, I'm, I'm not gonna I'm, I'm not gonna ruin it for you. But mm-hmm. everything turns out fine in a really great way. <laughs> it's incredibly satisfying to watch this movie. It is so sweet mm-hmm. and so endearing. And the entire cast is wonderful, and it god damn they know how to film a dress. They really know how to film a fucking dress. My stars and gardens. The, the, the best dress since uh, uh, in fabric. Sure, I Which, didn't see it. Uh, that that dress is a, it's a murdering dress. I'm, I'm aware of the murderingness <laughs> it's a of the dress. Peter Strickland movie about a murdering yeah. dress. He just ripped off. I'm dangerous tonight. Um, no, no, I mean the dress like floats around and murders people. Like okay. it's oh it's, yeah, so okay, it's not quite. I'm no, it's not. Tonight. I'm dangerous tonight. It does like you don't put on the dress and become evil. The dress itself is a okay. murdering thing. Well, that's fun too. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Anyway, what's your next pick? Uh, let's see. Got um, four left. Uh, yeah, four left. And you're, we're talking about sort of these warm, gentle movies, and my last four are all very hard and difficult. I got at least one hard and difficult. I also am starting to uh, run out of ones that people might not expect, because I got some some relatively big films okay. that, uh, that I've seen on other lists, and uh, I don't want to uh, do them any disjustice. Disjustice? Injustice. Injustice. Injustice by just saying, oh, but everyone's seen it. Like, no, they're wonderful. We'll yeah. talk about them. But yeah, there are fewer uh, surprises to, to go. This is one I'm glad I caught up on. I saw mm. it just recently. Um, it, and I wish I had seen it earlier in the year, but it's called After Sun. Ah, okay. uh, After Sun is excellent. It's been done by a filmmaker named Charlotte Wells. And uh, it's a semi, from what I understand, a semi autobiographical film about a young girl. Uh, she's mm. a, a, 11, she's almost 12. Mm. And she is on a vacation with her father. They're uh, having a vacation at a, like a Turkish beach resort in like the late 90s. Uh, how late 90s is it? She sings the entirety of uh, Losing My Religion at karaoke. It's more uh, mid 90s. I, I suppose so. It, it's just yeah. like late 90s because there's also like Chumbawamba's in there. Okay, that's kind of, uh, kind of. So yeah, like the, the music yeah. and the fashion is very, very uh, yeah. late 90s. She's not uh, down, she, but. I get up again. It's up again. You're never going to keep me down. Uh, we don't learn very explicitly what happened between the father and her mother. Hmm. Father is only now just turning 31, so they were young when they had their daughter. Uh, and something's happened where they've broken up. So mom's not in, in the movie. Right. It's just uh, dad and daughter having a vacation. Hmm. Over the course of the film, you learn that dad and daughter are maybe having their last vacation. Something's going to happen because we have occasional flashes to an older woman. And you sense pretty quickly that this is the the young girl grown up Mm. uh, wandering through this sort of like dance club where lights are flickering and she sees Mm. her dad there. So this weird kind of uh, it feels like almost like a supernatural thing is happening. This weird sort of like memory hole that she's entering. And we keep flashing back, and she's 11. She's hanging out with some of the teenagers that are also at this club, uh, or at this resort, that is. Yeah. And she's seeing them uh, drinking and, you know, being, you know, touching each other and being kind of sexual. And she's clearly fascinated by this. So she's 11. This is like something she's going through, like, an awakening of some kind. Yeah, like she's hitting that age where you start thinking about this stuff. Yeah, like like she's reaching kind of maturity, so she's growing up a little bit. But her dad, who's really into Tai Chi and is very kind and, you know, is really trying to engage with her, is also withdrawn. And we see some very strange things like him perched on the edge of a balcony or him running out into the sea with abandon at night. Mm. And we sense that there's uh, a deep depression at work in the father it's never explicitly stated but that's clear what's going on and in fact he's sort of uh withdrawn and having a little bit of difficulty enjoying himself 
on this uh, this vacation. It's very, very uh, realist. It's very, very matter-of-fact, the way it presents all of the its actions. Uh, and you're it's one of those movies where you're constantly waiting for the other shoe to drop, where something yeah. dramatic is going to happen. Uh, she goes out, you know, this, this young girl is, like, wandering around this uh, resort at night. She's locked out of her room, and her dad fell asleep inside, because they separated at one point. Uh, and you feel like something dangerous is going to happen, something... Like, the story is going to start. And mercifully, it never does. It's just about this little life experience and traveling with her father. Mm-hmm. Um, ouch! My fatherhood! Yeah, uh, that sounds... Is, i got to be honest here. That sounds like a real depressing film. It's... <laughs> Well, it's it's not depressing because it's very relatable. It's uh, relatable. It can be depressing. I relate to depression quite a lot. Well, and not just in the depression angle of it. Sure. It's it's about you know the people will be able to recognize growing up or being on vacation with a parent. Mm-hmm. Uh, if if you have divorced parents, the idea of spending some time with one parent instead of the other is going to be a relatable experience. And sure. I think it's very honest and I think it's very uh, understandable and very entertaining. Uh, it's you know funny throughout a, a certain portions. Uh, and the way the father and the daughter characters relate to one another is not always beatific. It's not antagonistic. It's just sort of awkward in that way that a 30-year-old is trying to relate to an 11-year-old and how they're not always matching 100% of the time, even though they clearly love each other. Uh, it's about fatherhood. It's about memory. It's about the, the texture of your memory. It is about awakening. Uh, who you are as an adult was formed by who you were as a child. All of these things are folded into this very quaint drama. Hmm. Uh, and yeah, I, I just fell in love with it immediately. And it's just like made my heart ache and I adore it. All right. Well, let me know when they make Before Sun. Because then, <laughs> then I'll understand where it's all coming from. You, well, this isn't like a Linklater thing. We're not going to do no. uh, at after after sun, before sun, you don't know. before midnight. It might. Sure, why not? I have nothing to add. I didn't see this one. I uh, heard nothing but amazing things. I never got around to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, I'm sure I will at yeah. some point soon. It just, I'll be honest here, uh, based on what I know about the film and some things you alluded to, um, it sounds like something that's going to hit me really hard, and I'm not sure I'm going to be in the mood at any given moment, but well, I will I, watch it. Because I'm the age I am, yeah. I was looking at this from the perspective of the father. Exactly. Because I'm a father. I, yeah. I have a seven-year-old. And yeah. uh, I imagine if I had watched this before I had my son, uh, I, it would have hit differently. It would have been more about mm. me looking to my parents. Sure. and uh, and very luckily, it functions in both ways. Yeah. It functions at looking at it from a parent and from a child's perspective because it's about the relationship between well, the I two. I think any generational story should work that way. Yeah, like as yeah. you get older, you see it from different mm-hmm. angles that you wouldn't have before. You yeah, know? It's, and it's, it works that way. Yeah, Ultimately, it is a story about... Uh, and this is going to sound really corny, appreciating your parents, ah. appreciating the, the things that they do and who they are as people and the memories that you have and cherishing those things. Mm. Uh, and yeah, if that doesn't rip your heart out. Fair enough. Well, listen, my next pick is, uh, is another uh, generational story. Okay. That is a story about uh, parents struggling to relate to their kid mm. and vice versa. And how the only way to really solve that problem is by traveling through alternate dimensions Mm. Uh, and uh, connecting with the various lives you could have led. <laughs> ah, Top Gun. Top Gun. No, uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once mm. is a film by Daniels. There's two guys named Daniel, and they decide to credit themselves as Daniels. Names are Dan Kwan and Daniel Scheinert. And, um, Not the Daniels, just Daniels. Just Daniels. 
I think the, they should put an exclamation point. Daniel! And then the D should be in lowercase, and Darren Aronofsky can just sort of sit back in his chair like Antonio Banderas in that one gif going, hey, yes. <laughs> um, Sickos at the window. Ha ha ha, yeah. You may have heard of this movie. It uh, came out towards the beginning of the year, and it did very well. Mm. And like, it just it was one of those movies that just never left like the top five of the box office for a long time. And gradually, even though it was never like a huge hit, Everyone seemed to see it, yeah, and it really dominated the conversation. And I didn't see this movie until quite late, actually. It oh, already yeah. been out like over a month by the time I finally got around to it, uh, and it was still in theaters, which is pretty rare. Um, and it's wonderful. Uh, Michelle Yeoh plays uh, uh, a Chinese immigrant. Uh, she's living with her husband, played by Kei Hui Kwan, uh, who, of course, uh, it's, his stories. He's winning a lot of awards because he was a short round. In Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and then he back didn't have much. And yeah. they kind of gave up acting for many decades, and now he's back with this huge breakout role, and he's great in it. Um, and yeah, they run a laundromat, and they have a teenage daughter, and she's queer, and mom doesn't understand that. Mm. Uh, and um, it's a mundane day. It's actually kind of a really crappy day. Uh, her father is visiting, and he's miserable. Uh, they're running this laundromat, which is not an easy thing to do. And on top of it all, they're being audited by the IRS, and the uh, IRS agent is played by Jamie Lee Curtis, and she's very no-nonsense about all of their bullshit about not understanding how taxes work. Mm. Which, by the way, taxes suck, and I have so much sympathy for people who don't understand how they work. It's so fucking hard <laughs> to do your taxes right. So they're going to the IRS, and when they go to the IRS, all of a sudden, her husband changes personalities real fast and says, hey, listen, I need you to do something. When you walk outside the elevator, I want you to think really, really hard about maybe walking into that supply closet. <laughs> what? Just do it! And then he changes back, doesn't remember doing that. And eventually what she realizes is that he was being taken over by a version of himself from an alternate reality. And alternate realities are formed every time we make a decision. Mm. And as a result, if you thought, oh, you know, there was a time when I thought about being a concert pianist, but I never ended up going for it. There's a reality now in which you did that. Hmm. And what they discover is that Michelle Yeoh has had such a really depressing life where every single thing she wanted to do, she didn't do. She has more alternate realities than anyone <laughs> else in the universe because there's she had nothing but unfulfilled potential. And she has to access all of those in order to stop basically this, like, Lovecraftian Leviathan everyone mm. keeps describing to her that is going to, like, destroy all of existence as we know it, every single reality. And only she can stop it, but she has to figure out, like, reality hopping over the course of, like, a morning mm. while also doing her taxes. Um, super complicated in basic construction. And yet, the way that it plays out... It seems so effortless. Like, <laughs> after this movie was over, just the sci-fi concept alone uh -huh. really stuck with me in a way that I think only the best mm. sci-fi fantasy films uh, really can. Where they like, all of a sudden, this is something by which you gauge things in your life. A yeah. like, great example of this for me is Albert Brooks's Defending Your Life, mm. which is a story in which he decided, what would the afterlife look like if it had nothing to do with religion? But you did have to sort of justify your existence. Yeah. You, know, you, had to, you had to say, I lived my life and I made these choices and I'm proud of it or I'm not proud of it. And there you go. So he created the system where you live your life based on how well did you avoid the most, you know, uh, debilitating part of life. Fear. 
Did you overcome fear? Were you able to overcome the many fears of life and live a great life? And I think about that a lot. Hmm. Like when I like if I'm make, when I'm making a difficult decision, I'm like if I'm dead and I'm in defending your life, how would I justify this? Could I justify this? Yeah. And if I can't, maybe I shouldn't do it. Everything ever all at once is one of those for me now. <laughs> because I think to myself, like, God, do I really want there to be an alternate reality in which I did this? Or do I want to do it here? Mm. And on top of it all, it's a great love story. It's a great action movie because it's Michelle Yeoh and they let her do all kinds of weird, crazy fights. Uh, there's a really fucking weird subplot in a, with a chef which I'm not going to ruin for oh. you, but it's so <laughs> fucking weird. I had to stand up and cheer in the theater. Uh, and and the overall story between her and her daughter ends up taking center stage and is actually kind of amazing and profound. Like the, mm-hmm. the, the way that they have to sort of find a way to connect in a way they never have on a way that no other human beings have ever connected. Yeah. Uh, it's really incredible filmmaking. It's really creative. What I appreciate about, uh, and I really love everything everywhere all at once. It's it's not on my top ten. Um, it it very nearly was, and it yeah. should you know could easily be on there. That's how I feel about Marcel um, the Shell. Like yeah, another day would have been. Yeah. yeah. Um, what I appreciate about it is, uh, in, in all of these sort of alternate universe universes, all these alternate realities, mm-hmm. um, when you introduce that kind of st- story element mm-hmm. into a science fiction story, that there's you know infinite numbers of yous. It's often presented as if it's something really kind of like profound and expansive. It's like, oh gosh, mm. any version of me I've thought of myself exists. Yeah. That means oh, like, yeah, all of my dreams came true somewhere. Also, well, you're not special anymore. <laughs> like, <laughs> you're just you're meaningless now. Um, yeah. uh, and on top of it all, this is not the reality in which you did stuff. No, so like, you it, actually have the worst life there, possible in all of the universe. Th- there was a, a Star Trek episode where they did this. Worf yeah. came upon a spatial phenomenon and sort of leaping about throughout realities. And um, in, in this one, he's married to Troy, and in this one, his son died, and this one, he has other children, and yeah. this one, he's uh, you know, Captain Picard died. Uh, and at the end of the episode, like, a rift opens and, like, the quadrant fills with, like, hundreds of enterprises. Hmm. Uh, and it's supposed to be, you know, just sort of a fun sci-fi story. How do we solve this mystery and get back to our realities? Yeah. And it's a good thing they did it with the character of Worf, who's, like, the warrior Klingon character. Because he doesn't have any sort of, like, profound psychological questions about, well shit if there's like all these different me's and they just every time i make a decision the timeline splits mm-hmm. it's like well why are we following this one yeah it's known for a he's while he's not gonna but... ask the headier questions he's just gonna kind of run headlong into it yeah yeah, yeah that's how i feel about uh, time crimes as well it, it mm-hmm. treats time travel that way it's from someone who doesn't know the questions to ask about time travel and probably never even saw back to the future <laughs> what is it like when they're trapped in a time loop like mm-hmm. you know so, uh, so what I appreciate about everything, everywhere, all at once, is that it pr- presents this concept. There's infinite numbers of views, and you can transfer, you know, jump into their bodies for a few mo- minutes, absorb all their memories, and then jump back and have your their skills. So yeah. She's essentially accumulating skills as the the film goes yeah. on. Fun uh, premise. Uh, so yeah, all, all of a sudden she's a really good chef, where she remembers she was a chef and she can throw a knife into a guy's head. Um, and yet, at the heart of all of that is. Uh, 
an actual very direct tackling of the nihilism that that story would espouse. Yeah. Uh, if there's an infinite number of views, then there is no meaning to anything. All, yeah. all, if all every meaning is just sort of out there. Well, then it's just sort of events playing themselves out. Now. No, like just, there, there yeah. are bits in the movie where she like literally just yeah. doesn't understand what's and, the point of anything anymore. And yeah, the great. villain of the piece, who is also played by the actress who plays her daughter. So, uh, you know, there's all the family drama realized. Good, obvious symbol there. Uh, is constantly tempting her to, in a very uh, wrinkle in time sort of way, mm-hmm. into the abyss. Yeah. Come, come in, like, and it's symbolized in this very absurd way. There's a bagel in the middle of the movie. Uh, but yeah, like, go, 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 come into the hole, gaze into the abyss, give in to complete and utter indifference because none of it does matter. Yeah. We've said so in the very setup of our. That's the our premise. Hand. Yeah. And then some of the yeah, it sounds phenomenal, but yeah, once you start interrogating it, you realize uh, there's a there's the film, a the film actually bothers to interrogate that yeah. and then counterpoint yeah. with a, a counter philosophy, which is so actually, it's actually about and, its ideas more than it is about its action, and it makes a convincing argument. So yeah. even if you are approach it cynically yeah. and think, oh, I'm not going to be part of this movie because I'm going to be really nihilistic about this, mm. but and they're going to be like, no, no, they deal with that and then they, in a very Star Trek kind of way, mm. come up with a convincing counter argument. That actually justifies why you go on, even though everything maybe is meaningless. Yeah, yeah. and that's great. So it's it's I appreciate that most of all. It's sort of so like good. it's philosophical ideas, even though the the action is fun. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of fighting. Uh, it it does uh, sort of. My only complaint is that the action is like way protracted, especially at the end. It's like mm-hmm. okay, we've kind of come to a conclusion. Oh wait, we need like another big action sequence where you kind of repeat I, the same points I, again. I, I think the way that they handle the last one's cute, though. I think they do something clever well, it's, it's that. Cute. Visually, yeah. it's interesting, yeah. but you know, I feel I think, like I it's character development. More, more frosting than actual cake. Yeah, maybe. I, th- I think that's... When there's this much cake, I don't mind a little extra frosting because uh, it's yeah. really... it's it, This movie's dense mm. and in a good way. And... I really do feel like when all is said and done, like we're talking about movies and like, you know, maybe no one will ever really remember Love and Leashes. Maybe a few people will watch it because I recommended it and they'll enjoy it and it'll help them and it'll be nice. But maybe in a hundred years it won't be remembered. I think Everything Everywhere All at Once is, is one of those movies that I think is going to age really well. I think it just, it, it, it works on multiple different levels. You mentioned the generational aspect you view after Son mm. from the perspective of the father, whereas earlier you would have from the child. I think that's going to be the same case with Everywhere All at Once. Mm. Um, yeah, I just think it holds up. I just think yeah, it, it's, it's just a wonderfully constructed and genuinely inventive movie. Yeah. In a mm. way that even other movies that, you know, Lots of movies are about alternate realities now. Mm. It's not uncommon. Like, but this one is special. And I think yeah. this one has something interesting to say with it. Mm. And I think it does so really beautifully. Yeah, the acting performances are really, really great. It's great. It, it, it was kind of embarrassing that this movie came out the same year as a movie uh, called Doctor Strange and the multi- in the Multiverse of Madness. Yeah, like within a month uh, of each yeah. other, too. Yeah. Uh, and Doctor Strange is, is an asshole wizard who's not very good at his job. <laughs> I mean, who, find, yeah. who finds himself traipsing across a, a couple different dimensions. Yeah, only into, a like, couple, ultimate. too. Like, Michelle yeah. Yeoh goes through, like, dozens? Yeah, like, a hundred dimensions. And he goes and through, like, there's, like, one quick montage like of him. Four, yeah. He spends time in, like, three or four, but they're not that interesting for mm. the most part, except for some cameos. Yeah. Like, and, this uh, is the how you do that. Yeah, and... and Again, Multiverse of Madness is a film that doesn't for a second interrogate any of the morality or the, no. the philosophy of like going and finding an alternate version of yourself. Yeah. It, I mean, it's a comic book movie. So you will encounter an alternate version of yourself and it's an evil twin and you, you, know, you physically fight them. I've seen it handled better than that in a comic book movie. There's an animated uh, 
Warner Brothers movie called Crisis on Two Earths, mm. uh, which opens with the last remaining superhero, uh, Lex Luthor, uh, fighting off the Justice League. Oh, uh, so and, like everything yeah, stops each other. Everything stops each All the heroes are villains, and like you know, like he like says goodbye to the Joker, like you were the, you were the greatest friend I've ever had. <laughs> like this is really beautiful. And he travels to our the the usual superhero dimension in order to recruit the good Justice League to fight the evil Justice League. And when fine, fine. evil twins, perfectly fine. fine. It's a good idea. And but the thing is that once the evil Justice League finds out what happened, the Batman analog Owl Man, who is sadly voiced by James Woods. Uh, okay. Before anyone, before he went completely off the deep end, um, fine actor, horrible person, indeed. Um, well, everyone is like, "Oh, we got to fight the Justice League. We got to fight the Injustice League." Yada yada yada. Owlman is just in the background building a machine to destroy every single reality, <laughs> and they're just like, "Why? Why would you do?" Like, even his friends are like, "Why would you do this?" And he's just like, "Because if there are an infinite number of realities in which every decision has been made." This is the only thing anyone could ever do that has purpose. And yeah, makes and sense. And it's like, I remember watching, I'm like, Jesus, that's creepy. Yeah, I mean, yeah. That's, you're, I, I see the logic, but damn, that's so, scary. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah the, you, you, can, the, uh, you can deal with this in a more interesting, like, the, the, focused way. The, you know? the parallel universe thing, which, you know, comic books have been doing since time immemorial, and now the movies yeah. are finally getting into that shit. Yeah, some uh, better than it. Spider Man did it okay. It, it's, but it's more or less an excuse to restart a story however you want. Yeah, it's like, it just gives you carte blanche to well, r- write, write new kinds of stories. I, I kind of like the way uh, that, like, the Spider-Man movies are just specifically the, the two Spider-Man movies that have done it already, the animated mm-hmm. one and the live-action one, mm-hmm. because there's something about them that's actually kind of sweet about how every version of these characters, these are stories that are told and retold, like a lot of different stories. Yeah. And the sort of underlying subtext of Into the Spider-Verse and No Way Home was... And they're all real. They're yeah. all fiction. They're all they're all just as valid as there's no mm. like that's this is the real Spider Man. No, they're all real. Doesn't matter if you like them or not. But, but again, they're all going, relevant. They're all artistically go, relevant. Go, going back to that wharf thing, but if you know if there's infinite numbers of them and they're all relevant, then what what are we doing here? And what matters is which one you care about. They're all valid. Them, there's yeah. no reason. Yeah. Anyway, we we right. should move on. We got down a rabbit hole ourselves. Well, okay, we got a couple more left. Right, I, I have uh, three left here. Yep, so um, right. I'm going to go to another horror movie, and this one's really rough, and it's really difficult. Uh-huh. And it's uh, kind of difficult to get your head around. Um, it's uh, And it also, like like Bodies, 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 is speaking very specifically to a, a new generation's experience mm. with uh, finding a community online. Uh, but it's a horror movie. It's called We're All Going to the World's Fair. Uh, let's and, just uh, bump this right up because uh, that's my number one. Is it really? Yeah. Oh, I'm surprised. Yeah. Okay. No, that is my number one movie of the year. So let's. Oh uh, my goodness. We'll, okay. Let's talk about that in a minute. All right. Uh, uh, that, I'll get. To, I'll go to the next one then because that means right. I have two left and you have only one left that we mm-hmm. haven't talked about uh, because it is that movie's fucking fantastic <laughs> and I'm so glad you well, picked it too. Yeah, well, we'll talk about that. All right. Well, I'll, I'll tell you about another horror movie. I'll talk about another horror movie and this one. Uh, this is really good. <laughs> sometimes, so, so it's not one of those bad ones. Well, you know, sometimes you, you watch a movie and it's just so damn good you don't want to talk about it. You oh, just yeah. kind of just want to enjoy it. Lot, like, yeah. you know, it's like you're a critic and you have to, but you know, I'm worried, like, am I going to add anything to the conversation? Nope is great. Oh, nope. Okay, I yeah. love Nope. I know you didn't like it as much as I did. No, I, I like Nope fine. Yeah. I, I, but uh, as much as I did, I think. Mm-hmm. Because uh, Nope, I think, is one of those really wonderful movies that is kind of every movie in a lot of ways. Like, mm. it, it covers, like, a lot of weird ground. 
Uh, Jordan Peele's first movie, Get Out, still arguably his best, maybe. Uh, but tightest. It's, it's, it's tightest. It's definitely his tightest, yeah. but um, it's very familiar. It's basically the Stepford Wives with, from a different mm. angle, and it works. It's brilliant. It's, I would argue it's better than the Stepford Wives. It's a fantastic motion picture. Um, with us, he tried to do something more novel, something mm. more distinctly, l- less distinctly uh, e- evoking a familiar tale. Mm. Uh, and it's a bit of a mess. I think when it's great, oh, yeah. it's amazing. But even even well, at the best wonder- of times, it's wonderful moments in it. But yeah. nothing coheres. It, it's like, it doesn't necessarily cohere very well. Mm. Nope. I think he cracked it. I think there are mm. definitely some moments where you can see the influence of things. But this feels like a new tale. I have not seen this tale before. Mm. And it's a story of uh, uh, Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer are brother and sister. Their father, played by the great Keith David, at the beginning of the movie, uh, he dies. And uh, they are left with uh, his horse ranch, and they are horse trainers for Hollywood. Uh, le- legacy horse trainers for Hollywood. Yeah, they've like been doing m- it for... Multiple generations, yeah. horse and trainers for Hollywood. So when you see a horse in a movie, there needs to be someone on set to take care of that horse, make sure the horse's needs are met. It is a large, muscular animal. It could potentially hurt someone if something bad happens or something surprised it or shocked it. So you have a horse wrangler the entire time. Uh, this is a movie very much about animal wrangling. It turns out that's the yeah that's the the centerpiece of the movie. It's also about Hollywood. It's also about cinematography. It's also about first contact. It's also about showmanship. It's also about uh, writing your own legacy. Uh, it's got fucking everything in it. Uh, and it basically what it boils down to is at their horse ranch, kind of in the middle of nowhere in like central California. Uh, weird things have been transpiring. Horses have been disappearing. And it turns out that there might be a UFO in the area. And their first thought is, no one's ever gotten good photographic evidence of a UFO. Mm. We're going to be the first. We're going to get the shot. That's what we're going to do. That's going to be our claim to fame. We're going to get the best shot in history. And the pursuit of that shot leads them down some unexpected paths, uh, including the discovery that the UFO is not what they thought it was. No. In a scene... That scared me so fucking bad. I cannot remember. <laughs> I don't think I've been that scared in a movie <laughs> since Get Out, actually. Right. And just that scene, like the, the sound effects and mm. the imagery of it, like when you finally like get a really clear sense of what the UFO is, mm. just scared the living shit out of me. Um, but uh, yeah, and that, that leads them on more adventures. Uh-huh. And it just completely, it, it, it doesn't feel like it's following a set formula. Well, that, I think that's, it's amazing. Yeah. Yet it feels right. It doesn't feel like it's missing a, a point or a bead. Or like, yeah, no, the, you'd be uh, stronger if you hit this thing I expect. Like, no, they're doing something very distinct and new. Yeah, I, I, the only complaint I have about, about Nope is that the, the climax takes too long. Uh, there's, there's this idea of uh, all, all these elaborate things they need to do to sort of see the UFO and get the shot. And that's like... A, a sizable portion of the movie it goes on way too long and then and he throws in an, uh, a reference to Akira for some reason in the middle of all <laughs> no of that. particular so, reason yeah. it's just cool it's just, it's like, just a I, great motorcycle I just like shot that, I just like that motorcycle shot from Akira yeah. so I'm gonna have Kiki Kamal there, there was a brief cool. moment where Jordan Peele was gonna adapt Akira and do an Akira movie and I think that was oh, just Jordan basically Peele, he's one of like 200 filmmakers yeah. that's been attached to an American I, I, I think he just liked that Akira. shot and wanted, like, I never get to do Akira but by god I'll do that shot <laughs> in this really movie cool. a movie about Hollywood horse wrangling yeah, uh, and yeah, there's a, a subplot. But that actually you know, it's a movie. Into... It's about great shots. Yeah, That's the well, iconic shot from Akira. It, it's it's a movie about uh, 
Essentially, it's a movie about the business and being a workhorse, sometimes literally, within yeah. the business. Yeah. Uh, and about how no matter what your legacy is, you can be sort of pushed aside and things are going to fade. Uh, there's two parallel stories. There's the story of Kiki Palmer and Daniel Kaluuya. There's also the story of the former child star yeah. who uh, was on a chimpanzee-based sitcom yeah. when he was young in the 1990s. It was like ALF, where like there's a yeah. regular normal family, but they have one member of the family who's unusual. In yeah. this case, it's a chimpanzee. And, and yeah, it was like a, a live animal was on yeah. set and uh we see actually in a prologue that something really yeah. horrible happened with that animal on set uh, also fucking scary as hell yeah yeah uh, some, some some scary uh chimp really imagery weird, yeah. um uh, but yeah no so that that so yeah this, a, this yeah. idea of uh being cast off by uh hollywood mm-hmm. is a big theme of the movie uh, as is uh animal wrangling yeah it, well, it's, also, it's also a story about uh uh setting safety aside in the pursuit of your goals. Mm. Uh, and that's something that they did in that chimp show. Mm. Uh, that is something that characters in Nope do repeatedly. Michael Wincott plays a cinematographer. <laughs> awesome to have Michael Wincott back, by the way. I have not seen him in, a, in enough Ma- movies Ma- in a while. Michael Wincott gives a dramatic reading of the lyrics of The Flying Purple People Eater. Uh-huh. And it's one of the most magical moments of cinema this year. If I had my druthers, he would be nominated for an Academy Award. He's so <laughs> fucking good in this movie. But he's another guy who, he's, he's an accomplished cinematographer within the film. And he might be so eager to mm-hmm. get great cinematography that he'll do something stupid. And that's something people do constantly. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the, the, and the, 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 uh, the, the push and pull between doing something great and doing something practical. Uh-huh. And when to make that choice is something that I think weighs on a lot of the characters. Danny Kaluuya deals with that a lot. And it has a lot to do with the title. Where it's like, I could go outside and take a look at that UFO. Nope. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Pick your battles. Yeah, anyway, yeah. I think Nope is incredibly exhilarating filmmaking. It's mm. just inc- it, it showed me some things I hadn't seen before. Okay, uh, it told a story in a way I hadn't expected, and it's incredibly rich and dense the way I think uh, Get Out was, but without feeling beholden to a specific piece of influence. Mm-hmm. Uh, it felt new and fresh, and I just loved that to pieces. So right. that's that's my uh, that's my. Note third from the last yeah, all right what's what's yeah. you got you got two left i got two I left. Got, yeah well I, I guess i we're still going to talk about our number ones uh yeah. so i guess almost at number one and yeah. this is one you probably expected me to talk about um as uh the other animated the third animated film from my list and it's phil tippett's mad god ah. uh god mad god mad god is the kind of movie I constantly wait for <laughs> something this odd and this off-putting and this exhilaratingly strange. Uh, This is a a stop-motion animated film. It was made over the course of many years uh, by Phil Tippett, who uh, did a lot of creature animation. Phil Tippett Mm. worked on uh, the dinosaurs in uh, Jurassic Park. Mm. Uh, He did uh, the Vermithrax pejorative dragon in the movie Dragon Slayer. You ever see Howard the Duck? He did the lobster monster. You know what? Say what you will about that movie. That's an impressive lobster monster. That monster monster is awesome. (laughs) That movie, that monster is all-timer great. So Phil Tippett, already an expert monster maker, uh, decided to make a movie about, well, what if that monster fell asleep and had a nightmare? (laughs) It's a great description. Yeah, because that's what's happening in Mad God. Mad God takes place in a post-post- Post post apocalyptic world uh-huh. where the only living humanoid beings are 
not really human anymore. Yeah. They've evolved into something else. They're partly mechanical. They're barely alive. We're on the last thread of utter entropy in this world. And the story, as it were, uh, follows this one mute character in a gas mask who gets into, like, a diving bell and just delves into the heart of the planet. Yeah. And with each level this creature descends, the more horrible and inhuman things become. There are these, like, human-shaped beings that are running these weird sort of machines that are hooked up to the innards of a giant that's barely alive and being fed filth just to stay alive. And we get to see all of these vistas. And as, Mm. you know, we explore deeper and deeper, there's mad doctors who drill into people's brains and extract memories to find out what's going on. Uh, People keep their valuables inside their guts. Nothing is alive in this world where things are seemingly still kind of alive. And by the time we get to sort of the heart of all of this, it opens up into this like almost a twisted Alice in Wonderland kind of fable imagery starts entering into it, where things are glowing and maggots are playing cards. And it, it all feels of this very, very off-putting, uh, just nightmare universe. Mm. Uh, it, it's a world of filth and fear and pain. And I love that. <laughs> There's one human in this universe, mm. and it's played by fucking Alex Cox, the director of yeah, Repo Man. Yeah, that's weird. Uh, that's a weird thing, that is. <laughs> and it's like, if, if you're going to like surprise me with somebody, make it Alex Cox. Why that's not? great. Uh, so, you know, so, yeah, there is like a little bit of an explanation as to sort of what this world is. Kind of. Kind of. But not really. Like, no, not, a, not in a meaningful way, really. Yeah, it's like, just sort like, of justification. Like, like yeah. it comes to a, like a, a kind of a conclusion. But more than anything, it's just about being lost in this nightmare scape. And yeah. I have never felt more terrified to be lost in a nightmare scape. Wow. I felt like. I was afraid that he wouldn't find his way out. And after a while, I knew he wasn't Yeah. this, this weird being. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah. And after a while, like all of this, like dark mutilation happens and you just realize that th- this is a world of rot. This mm. is uh, th- the edge has fallen off. Everything's crumbling from the outside in and nothing's standing anymore. Uh, there, but a single sneeze could cause the entire <laughs> world to collapse. Um, it's it's a feature length tool video uh, with that's, all, all of that's all of true. all of the yeah. fil- the filth and quivering rusty meat you're used to yeah. seeing in those kinds of music videos. Yeah, I could have uh, used some tool though. I'm not gonna lie. Pardon? Could have used some tool though. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> so, you know, like so, some like really hard industrial. Yeah, music, maybe I think it'd be. I feel like that'd be that would have made it. Like a there's extra, some music, but, like, but it's yeah. mostly just like groaning yeah. and squelching noises. Nah, which I you know, I, it, it's really it's every post-apocalyptic movie rolled into one and then exaggerated by fifty. I, I wish I liked this movie as much as you did. I respect this movie. Yeah, this movie is an accomplishment. It took decades to make this movie. It was yeah. made like on the on the sly, basically. Like whenever kind of he worked was on it off off yeah. uh, on the side like, in between projects. It's an incredible accomplishment. You know, sometimes I think um, um, when it comes to stuff like award season, uh, we get so hung up on like oh who's like who, which performance is the best. It's purely subjective. Sometimes I think we need to remind ourselves we should also be asking ourselves, what's worthy of an award? <laughs> like, what's not just good? What's, uh, the, what's so different and distinct? What what accomplishment is so, like, impressive that you should get an award for it? Mm-hmm. And this is a movie that I don't think I would put it... It didn't make my list of the best films of the year. I didn't make my uh, runners up. 
But uh-huh. if it was nominated for Best Animated Feature, I'd be like, that's the one I'd vote for. <laughs> yeah. That deserves an award. That's mm. a different thing. Mm. Um, so I have a lot of respect for it. I, for me, I think what keeps me uh, on the outside of it is this nightmarish hellscape mm. that, that we're inside. I never feel like... You describe it as a dream. You describe it as a nightmare. Uh-huh. And But I feel like when you're in a nightmare... You have an innate cognizance of how this relates to you. Okay. And I don't have that from Matt God. I uh, think there is a, it's a little abstract a lot of the time. All right. Um, and as a result, I felt I was looking at it, not immersed within it. Okay. Uh, maybe not everyone has that response. That was my response to it. So I was impressed by what I was looking at, but mm. I never felt like I was absorbed by it. All right. I, but I look think, at it. It's great. I, I think yeah. it's an incredibly visceral movie, and I think it yeah. does have the power to really sort of grab you with its its grime and its textures and its yeah. very strange characters. Uh trying to figure out what is going on with sort of certain, some of these beings. There's a scene late in the movie where uh, a character wanders, wanders through this room and there's these two Leviathans with electrodes in their brains, their exposed brains beating each other with clubs. And you get a sense like they've been doing that for centuries. Mm -hmm. Some, uh, what's that line from in the mouth of madness? Um, Choked by the unhallowed bones of, Oh no, it's, Choked by the gleaming white bones of countless unhallowed centuries. Um, uh, that, that's what I, I feel is going on. Something almost Lovecraftian and apocalyptic is happening constantly. That our, our, our society has evolved to a point where we don't even recognize this shit anymore. Yeah. Why did we create electro-brain monsters to, to kill each other? Mm. In, Seemed like in, a good idea in, at the time. In perpetuity, through all eternity. Seemed like a good idea at the mm-hmm. time. Uh, all right, well, my next to last pick, mm. um, it's no real mystery to our number ones anymore, but fuck it. Yeah. We, that's that's what we get for doing it this framework. <laughs> uh, my number two is, uh, I already said Mrs. Paris Goes to Paris yeah. is the best feel-good movie of the year. Okay. Uh, Do you have a feel-bad movie? I don't have a feel-bad movie oh. per se, other than you know, maybe Tar, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Right. Uh, but th- I think this might be the best like blockbuster movie. Like, you go mm. to the movie... To get like an eight course meal of entertainment. Uh-huh. Everything you could possibly fucking want from a movie. And a movie that, in a year with some movies that are perhaps rightly celebrated mm-hmm. for presenting a great amount of spectacle, uh, many of them incredibly expensive, yeah, we're moneyed. About, we're talking about Avatar, that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, like that kind of thing. Uh, this is a movie that puts all of those to shame, and it's RRR. <laughs> it's a Telugu cinema. Yeah, uh, directed by S.S. Rajamuli. Uh, it is a story of uh, two Indian historical heroes. Real people. Uh, real people, but incredibly fictionalized. Uh, <laughs> they, they took the names, and that's pretty yeah, much it. It, 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 it. Again, I'm not. I'm no expert, but from what I can tell, it has, you know, s- slightly more historically accurate than Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. Like, <laughs> um, but the idea is that these two people who existed more or less concurrently never met. So this is a bit of a work of historical fan fiction where what if these two freedom fighter type guys not only met, Mm. but had an epic bromance in which they clearly loved each other, but through the machinations of the plot and the decisions that they made throughout their lives, will also fight perhaps to the death (laughs) in epic, awesome Uh. action ways. This is the kind of movie where... um, like a young, like a, a little kid will be like, 
in, in danger mm. in like underneath a bridge. And two guys about a half mile apart. Just gl- glimpse at each other from they, a half mile away. They just see in each other's eyes. You're a protagonist. I'm a protagonist. Let's fucking do this. And they get on motorcycles and they like fly off of the bridge with a rope. They do not explain this plan to each other. And then they, they just, they, they swing around the bridge like in Spider-Man and they like grab the kid. Like it's the most elaborate stupid thing. And it's unbelievably <laughs> cool. Yeah, there's, there's a, a it's it's a three hour picture. There's a lot of big long set pieces which are just yeah. nothing but action. And, it, and one of the characters is introduced like murdering a hundred guys. Yeah, during like a, a riot, a, pro- a protest against uh, colonialism, the, the British colonialists. Yeah, in fact. yeah. He works for the, the colonialists. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's and he, yeah, so he's introduced as kind of the bad guy, but he wins you over it's like so dramatically. The cast is absolutely wonderful. It's a musical because of course it is. Uh, the wedding song Natu Natu is going to win best original song, right? Come on, like are are there any contenders? I can't think of a single what, one. What about all those squelching noises from Mad God? Best song. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is a three-hour movie, and you'd never know it. Like if you're in a theater oh, oh, at the time, it, but no, uh... you'd better be time well spent. It's incredibly well paced for what it is. It's constantly. Uh, it gives you all these like gigantic moments, but it also knows when to slow down and earn them a little bit, mm. so that when you hit a point where a guy like crashes into a castle with a giant truck and then rips a, the tarp off the truck and it's full of like deadly forest animals like lions and shit, and they all just start it's attacking like, like, people tiger, on mass tigers, tigers. tigers. Sorry, it's India. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah fair enough. Uh, but like then the just then there's like man eating tigers start like eating all the colonialists (laughs) and like people are throwing tigers at each other and it's just like this is the coolest thing i've ever seen and all of these like american movies that are trying to manufacture spectacle Mm. by throwing money at it in a lot of cases like avatar which again i kind of like the new avatar or the the new avatar is fine i I, I, I have no major objections to that i have have some critiques i didn't Mm. i didn't give it like our, our highest rating but like still it's an impressive spectacle um, or something like Top Gun Maverick, which is a very efficient piece of filmmaking that I enjoyed watching. Hmm. But at no point in any of those movies was I like, oh, fucking shit, this is awesome. And I did that constantly throughout <laughs> well, RRR while yeah. being swept up in the stories and really caring about the characters and actually appreciating the film's overarching themes. Like That's great filmmaking. Uh there was a moment in Avatar where I was really kind of exhilarated, and what's and it's when the the whale just fucked up the naval vessel. Okay, I'll give you. Uh, okay, I'll give you that. That's probably the moment. Yeah, like <laughs> it's probably the one moment. Hey, ever see Free Willy? Yeah, fuck you, pile drive a <laughs> fucking boat. That's a good moment. I'll admit that's a good uh, moment. Yeah. Uh, I like RRR as well. Yeah. Uh, I, I I it's just uh, everything you want in cinema. All all of yeah. the action, all of the the romance, all of the music, all of the dancing, all of the the flashbacks and explanations yeah. and where did they get all these bombs and taking down all, all the the taking down the colonialists. It's all great. Yeah. Um, it's also kind of odd to see it catch on the way it has in the United States. Yeah. Because why this one? Yeah. When a lot of Indian cinema is comparable. Yeah. Uh, th- this, it's like, th- this is the one that sort of like snuck through. Yeah. And I implore people to 
not see RRR as necessarily like the one extraordinary one. No, no, it no, is no. one of many. Yes, uh, and it's one of many film industries within India. Mm-hmm. This this is a Telugu cinema that's completely different from Bollywood cinema. Yeah, uh, it's a different part of the country. It's a different industry. Yeah, uh, you know, a whole different set of languages. No, I'm glad you said this because mm. I I that's mm. something I was going to get to as well. Yeah. Which is this is the I feel like in some respects this is almost like a Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon kind of vibe where mm. th- this is not even that distinct mm-hmm. amongst a lot of films from that region, but they don't get big releases here in America. And so when one does, and it really does blow us away, we go, wow. And then you go to the next step. Yeah. yeah. And so let this be, I'm excited. I want to, I want to explore more of these films. I haven't had an opportunity to, because Mm -hmm. frankly, most of them never got major releases over here. They were harder to find. Mm-hmm. Um, so well, now, now they're yeah. more accessible. And this is a film that I think enough people have been impressed by mm-hmm. will hopefully appreciate more. And maybe as we explore more of these movies, we'll realize that RRR isn't even one of the better ones. Maybe we will. Yeah, but regardless, this, it's it, a, it's just timing, if you will. Uh-huh. You know, it's like when uh, uh, Five Fingers of Death uh, broke out in America. Just one of many kung fu movies that were coming out at the time, but that was the breakout one. Yeah. That was the one that connected at the right moment, you know? No, I, I just hope that this will lead to people uh, giving sort of a greater exploration of international cinema. Yep. Uh, that they don't just say, oh, I like that one, and just leave it there. Exactly. Uh, because there's so much more to be explored. Yeah. Uh, this doesn't have to be the so, exception to the rule. Yeah, it can introduce a new rule. I, I feel like a lot of people are saying, oh my gosh, I've never seen a movie like this. Really? Well, go just see more Indian movies because you'll yeah. see a hundred other movies just as exciting as not underplaying RRR. No, uh, no, just no, no. there, are, this is sort of like a, a filmmaking ethos mm-hmm. in, in a lot of Indian cinema and yeah. this sort of maximalist sort of filmmaking. Every film is three hours. Yeah. There's going to be several song and dance numbers. There's uh, you might even have seen clips of uh, like science fiction movies or action movies that came from India that sort of mm-hmm. make their way onto YouTube occasionally. Yeah, because they're in, in a vacuum yeah. or even in context, they're pretty outlandish. Yeah. And so you're like, oh my God, what the hell is that? And then, you, but the thing is that a lot of times the actual movies, hard to find. Yeah. And yeah. what I would hope is it's not entirely on the audience here because it is also on distributors and mm-hmm. uh, publicists to make sure that these movies, when they do come over here, and hopefully more of them do, mm-hmm get the same level of attention. Yeah. Or at least an opportunity to do so. They can't they're not necessarily all gonna be winners, yeah. but you want them to actually be able to find an audience here mm-hmm. that otherwise had previously not been exposed to them. And RRR might, might will hopefully make them go, I want to see more, but not everybody has the time, energy or or know how resources. They're yeah. the resources to go on a hunt. So it is it does fall to other people in the industry as well to make these easier to find easier to access and so for people to sort of have these conversations about more than just one film so yay I love this movie. Please see this movie. Don't don't let this conversation like me go. Like, oh, maybe I won't say. No, see it. It's no, great. De- definitely see this. Yeah, one. yeah it's, it's, it's absolutely wonderful. It's one of the most entertaining and, movies. And, and know, I've seen in a long time. know that it's the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, there's there's going to be a lot more to be discovered along yeah. similar lines. Anyway, enjoy the iceberg. Yeah. And now let's talk about your number one film of the year. My number one film of the year was Tar. Uh, yeah. Todd Field's film Tar about Lydia Tar, the uh, EGOT uh, mm. concert conductor, who. Uh, runs afoul of her own impulses. Um, the detail that Todd Field, the director, oh God, brings so into this detail. movie. 
is fucking impeccable. Uh, this movie feels so fucking real. Yeah. The, the, yeah. the I, I when the movie Call Me by Your Name came out, mm. uh, it was very rightly praised. A very mm. exhilarating love story. Still think Army Hammer was miscast. Uh, that's fine. That's Ignore, ignoring what we know about him, he just looks too old. <laughs> that's all, I found that really distracting. Yeah. Otherwise, I get, I get it. I just think yeah. he's just way too old for that movie. Uh, but uh, a big part of that movie was uh, we're we're on summer break. Mm-hmm. We're staying at this big, rich Italian villa. Uh, we catch fish directly out of the sea, and we eat those for dinner at night. We have apricots yeah. that we pick fresh from the tree, and we discuss art, and the sculptures we're literally pulling out of the ocean. Mm-hmm. It's like it's okay. like the greatest Airbnb commercial I've ever yeah. seen. Just rent this villa. Okay, so every critic wants that life. Yeah. So of course it got good reviews. <laughs> if, if I may be a little bit mercenary about that I don't for disagree. a second. Uh, I feel like that's what's going on in Tar. It's this sort of world... The high art world is given a lot of attention. The aesthetics and the interiors and the way uh, the people who run in these circles communicate with one another. The intelligentsia. The intelligentsia. And um, there's an interview early in the movie with Lydia Tar, played by Kate Blanchett. It's my first Uh, scene. Yeah. Uh, And it's, it's very long, and she gives sort of her a lot of her theory and she gets really into deep into her philosophy mm-hmm. about music and like the kinds of projects that this character mm-hmm. has been setting up, like the young female conductors uh, workshop. And it sets the and audience they, up to know just how impressive this person and, is. Yeah. Even if you're not uh, interested in classical music. Yeah. It, it, when I, when I saw the movie and when I was watching that scene, like why is Kate Blanchett behaving so weird? Like she hmm. get she's like very well spoken, but she has Luca uh, the get off are, the counter. Cats are knocking. Oh, uh, it's off. classic Luca behavior. Luca, get off the, get off the counter, buddy. There we go. Thank right. you. Uh, but she's speaking in this very clipped fashion, and you yeah. realize as the film goes on that that was that's a deliberate affect of the character. Yeah, that she's putting, putting on, on those kinds of airs is actually a big part of who she is. And uh, we also we learn also over the course of the the movie a little bit more about her past, about this mysterious figure from her past, this young woman who yeah. uh, she had maybe some kind of relationship with. Uh, yeah, and, it's, and, and it's, now they're, she's trying to avoid her. Yeah, and it's like, well, why, are why are we not talking about this person? Of course, we yeah. learn more details as the film goes on. Yeah. And it leads to this grand scandal. And yeah. uh, all, all while we're living inside these wooden interiors in this world of like auditions and mm. delving into the fineries of what, who Mahler is and mm. they're writing these uh, big concertos to his wife Alma. Everything in the movie is very controlled mm. and particular. The spaces that mm. these artists inhabit is to like a, a, a single micro detail mm. planned and exactly the way they want it. And when it is disturbed, it is deeply troubling. Yeah. Uh, to the extent that uh, this relationship uh, Lydia Tarr had with uh, this young woman, or maybe she didn't, uh, ends up feeling, literally or figuratively, like a haunting. Yeah. yeah. And and there are people who are actually like approaching Tarr as a haunted house story. Even though it doesn't <laughs> take place in a house. But like as like a supernatural uh, tale. And the fact that the level of psychological impact mm-hmm. Lydia Tarr is going through in a very almost Scrooge kind of way <laughs> where like just their, 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 their misdeeds and their past, present and future are becoming very tangible and real and maybe uh, uh, taking on a form they don't like. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that the movie can have that interpretation and also be 
arguably strictly realist <laughs> is nothing less than astounding. This is one yeah, of those mm-hmm. movies that feels like every kind of movie. It's funny. Hmm. There's funny things in the movie. Well, There's also absolute horrible shit that happens in the movie. Lydia Tarr is a terrible human being. There's a scene early in the movie. She's teaching a class at Juilliard, I think. Yeah. And she's trying to convey some kind of fucking point. And there's a young person in her class well, who is not particularly interested because she's like, well, why don't you like, was it Brahms? It was Bach. It was well, Bach. Why don't you like Bach? He's, he's and he's like, I don't to, connect to Bach because of my experiences. Uh, uh, yeah, the, the, this... Um, the student uh, is a uh, non-binary student yeah. and uh, a queer student and yeah. and, and, and a person of color as well. Uh, yeah, and they say, well, Bach was uh, you know a, a European white man who had many many children, mm-hmm. and I can't understand him as a person, and as such can't understand his music. And she tries to shoot a hole in that. She's like, yeah. well, listen to the music. Don't you know? Don't worry mm-hmm. about who identifying with the yeah. artist. Who who the artist is is irrelevant if their music is great. Mm-hmm. Is an argument Lydia Tarr espouses to and tries to live. Mm-hmm. And what you realize is that that is a perfectly like you can make that argument mm. after they're dead. <laughs> In reality, you mm. have to deal with that person, and that yeah, beca- yeah. and that is a different conversation. Uh, well, and that's that you know that that's where the conflict comes in. Yeah. It's like, uh, okay, you can make great work, and now that the per yeah Bach has been yeah. dead for several hundred yeah. years now, so we we can just sort of regard his art. Now, rather yeah. than worry about yeah. who he was as a human being. It is being. arguably possible to separate art mm-hmm. from the artist, again, when the, you don't have to concern yourself with the artist. Yeah. Uh, I don't even necessarily ascribe to that, but it's an argument that can be made. Uh, but yeah, here she has taken this so to heart mm-hmm. that she believes that if she's merely great enough, she can kind of do whatever she fucking wants. And well, a lot of people do yeah. kind of believe that, Th- whether they admit a, it or not. Yeah, that's a, like a theme that starts like creeping into the movie later I think on. It's clear, but, uh, I think it's clear pretty early yeah, that yeah. she's she's she clearly has an incredibly rarefied view of herself. Mm. She's very... People praise her and she never goes, no, no, no. She always goes, yeah. Like, and that's <laughs> constantly throughout. And you get the impression that through her accomplishments, and she has accomplished a lot, maybe she has earned that ego. But where does that take you? How far does that go? How does that level of accomplishment, that level of praise, and that level of ego start affecting you on a human level? What decisions do you make differently hmm. because you see yourself as great? And I think that's a big part of what Tara is about. Mm. And that is a fascinating question that Todd Field knows how to explore in a very rich, detailed, intricate, yeah, it, believable it, way. It, it doesn't let anybody off the hook. Not really, no. Uh, but it does It look at some of these questions. It does humanize a lot of these people. And we actually yeah. get to learn a lot about Lydia Tarr. Yeah. Lydia Tarr, not a great person, but yeah. I understand her. I understand uh, her I, a lot. I, 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 I like spending time with her, even though she's doing these horrible things. Yeah. Uh, she has a, a hilarious scene where she plays an accordion <laughs> uh, in this like kind of moment of abandon later in the movie. But yeah, yeah, she's for been the pushed most... really far, and she decides to play an accordion in a really shitty way. Yeah, but at the same time... Uh, her confidence yeah. in this ability to uh, sort of convince yourself that you've been working in your field long enough that you're uh, sort of permitted dispensations. Yeah. I think that's something everybody can relate to in a uh, mm. kind of a way. You've been working at your job long enough, crappy retail job. Maybe, yeah. But I can come in five minutes late and I get busted now. Right. Yeah. Like that, I've worked a, here long enough. Those I'm little, trusted, th- right? those little things start yeah. adding up after a while. Don't uh, well, they? Like they, they speak more to your character. Yeah. 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 And, and if you've worked in a field long enough and you're to- told constantly and other people tell her how yeah. great she is and she is 
legitimately great. She's been given mm. all these awards throughout her career. Yeah. Uh, that, yeah, these sort of like little spe- special dispensations are kind of a natural part of what to expect when you rise to, to a certain level of, quote, mm. greatness. Yeah. Uh, and, she sees it as her right. She sees it as a right, and we totally understand that. And if she were a noble soul, we would allow for that, wouldn't we? Mm -hmm. So it actually is bringing up a kind of sticky ethical question about what what we allow in terms of what what is uh, rule-abiding and decent. Yeah, for a while it seems like Todd Field's film is going to be uh, potentially amoral. Just mm. very uh, uh, non-judgmental mm. of her and her life, and as you film goes on, you realize that no, 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 he's, he's, he has he's a point take, of view. Take, he, taking people to task, he, for things, people yeah. will be taken to task for because there was a moment early on where I was like, "Am I going to enjoy this?" Because <laughs> like, I know I'm going to respect it; it's clearly well made. But is this going to just piss me off at the end? And it didn't. And in fact, the ending of this movie, which I won't ruin, is great. <laughs> it's a really because this movie's like about three fucking hours long, give or take. It's two forty. Yeah. Pretty fucking long. Yeah. Closer to three hours than two. Sure. And after a while, you start asking yourself, "This movie's covered so much fucking ground. Where does it end? Mm. Like, what's the cutoff? Because you clearly didn't feel the need to like tell a contracted." story of a character yeah. it's like a, a, in microcosm or something like that you're telling it in a very grand scope even though it rarely requires you to leave a building you know everyone it's not like you know rrr where the people are throwing tigers at each other um but like yeah where do we leave lydia tar that is dramatically satisfying and thematically satisfying what is the ending to this movie that works and some movies are so genre-oriented that you have a general sense of where they're probably going. Yeah. Maybe they'll surprise you a little bit, but, you know, you know that, like, these people end up together, this lesson will be learned, this conflict will be resolved. And here, I had no fucking idea how this thing was going to end. And when it finally got to the end, I'm like, oh, they did it. <laughs> it's kind of a mean joke in some ways. Like, there's, there's like, a sense of humor to it that maybe there's there's... So, an element of it that doesn't really warrant that but also it's great yeah <laughs> it's so yeah. fucking great tar uh, is amazing there, there's uh a, without revealing anything there's yeah. there's a reference to a real life thing right at the end of the movie yeah and uh I, i've heard people who are like recognized what that thing was uh-huh. and they lost their fucking minds it's like oh my god <laughs> everything connects like even stronger for yeah, like, if you recognize so what awesome. that thing is it's really fucking great um yeah. Yeah, no, Tar is amazing. It was not my number one, but obviously it made my top ten. Yeah, it, it's uncanny. It, and... it was my number one because in addition to all of these like yeah. really heady themes, it's also just a really sumptuous film to watch. So good. Just wonderful photography, uh, wonderful production yeah. design. We barely uh, talked about Kate Blanchett's performance. Mm. She's Kate Blanchett. She's one I mean, of the best she, actors yeah, in the she, world, she's but so she's good. astounding in and, it. Yeah, and like, everyone in the movie, even they have a mm. tiny performance, is giving yeah. is giving a performance on the same level. Yeah, she uh, just she, gets the command the the screen more. She has a, a long suffering assistant played by uh, Noemi Merlant from uh, uh, Portrait of Lady, Portrait of Lady on Fire. Yeah, she's great, and yeah, she she gives a really good performance. Yeah, uh, uh, there's a. a well, to to say it again, she mm. sort of has this sort of constructed nature to her performance, yeah. which uh, at the beginning of the movie feels like it's a bad performance, and then you realize, oh wait, this is actually a really rich mm. and very nuanced sort of uh, this artificiality. Perfor- this is a performance of someone who is giving a performance, yeah, yeah, yeah in and, some regards, yeah. She's she's controlling her narrative, and her very costumes, clearly. and her hair, and oh her, her relationship with her wife, and all her of these body things. Body language yeah. is astounding. <laughs> oh my god, yeah, Tara's amazing. Yeah. Uh, 
and uh, and I highly recommend the episode of Hot Ones, where Kate <laughs> uh, Blanchett talks about tar while eating like hot wings. Yeah. If, if you know the the YouTube show Hot Hot Ones, it's um, the host brings on celebrity guests to talk about their careers uh-huh. uh, while eating like increasingly hot levels of hot sauce. Yeah. Like it's, it's the it's one. A, it's a fun gimmick. And it's the yet one it talk show works, I yeah. don't fantasize about going on because <laughs> I have no palate for spicy foods. I yeah. go up to like the second level. I'd be like, and the interview is over. I have to go throw up now. Yeah. She's on it and she's eating eating these hot wings. Like so, yeah. When we're talking about Mahler and oh Jesus, like, it's just, <laughs> and, and, and you know people cry and vomit on the show. It's it's really a I, really I a hoot. Wasn't there a bit of a conspiracy theory where like she was wearing the same clothing on hot ones that she does when she did her like Criterion Closet walk through, and everyone's like, did she like, do that the same day? Or, That's the best day ever. <laughs> Come on, Hot Ones. It, I hope she went on Hot Ones after going into the Criterion Closet. Can you imagine her Criterion Closet? Yeah. It, like rubbing her eyes. Oh, yeah. Sure. I, I, I love Jean Dielman. Like, crying just thinking about it. It's not the ghost pepper at all. <laughs> 50 million Scovels. Fuck. Anyway, my number one pick of the year, mm. uh, and, and you already mentioned yeah, it, it is, is a film that, you know... I'm surprised this is number one. I, I love it. Got, yeah, I love this movie so much. I missed it when it so came hard. out. Okay. I caught up with it towards the end of the year, and it really uh, uh, spoke to me in, a, in a very, some very interesting ways. And I, in addition to just being a great movie and a great story, I actually think it is a really important film in terms of capturing the evolution of cinematic language that we're experiencing mm-hmm. right now that we're maybe a little resistant to. Um, well, some filmmakers are doing it real, real hard. Some are really well, doing do really hard. I think this is a really, really exceptional one, though. Um, so this is called uh, "We're All Going to the World's Fair." It is, uh, I think it's the, th- is it the feature debut of Jane Shainbrim? Uh Yes. Okay. Well, I believe uh, it is. Yeah. Uh, and um, yeah, it is a story of uh, a teenager, uh, Casey, I believe is their name, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, they are taking part in an online challenge. And the online challenge is a creepypasta. It's like an interactive creepypasta. Mm-hmm. If you don't know the term, uh, creepypasta is a term for uh, basically a horror story that spreads online as a bit of word of mouth. Yeah, the, and, and some... Uh, the, the modern version of a campfire tale. Yeah, uh, and uh, uh, Rebecca McKendry had to, uh, who a mm-hmm. uh, filmmaker in her own right, she used yeah. to be an editor of ours, um, had to explain to me what the term creepypasta means. And yeah. evidently, it's like a boulderization of the phrase uh, "cut and cut and paste." Yeah, cut and pasting, creepy pasta, cut and paste. Uh, and uh, the idea is, a lot of people, someone will write a ghost story. Mm-hmm. Someone else will uh, cut and paste it without context elsewhere, mm-hmm. and it will start to spread around as if it's like an urban legend. And yeah. this is how stuff like Slenderman exactly gets okay. started. Yeah, yeah Slender Man is not like a th- uh, like. Oh, there was kind of a true story. It's based on like no, you can go to the forum where they invented it where, yeah, in where real an, time. An, an author invented it, and, and you yeah. can see. But it because it caught on because it was creepy. You know, it it mm. succeeded and it just kind of got evolved until it's well, it doesn't really have a final form. I guess it never can. But until it, the form that we connected with everybody and became a sensation. So uh, we're all going to the World's Fair. Is basically the name of that stage, uh, of that uh, creepypasta. Uh, they're a teenager. They're on, they're on their camera. They like cut their finger and they smear blood on their mm. camera lens, and they say, "I want to go to the World's Fair" over and over again. And then they say, "I will let you know and record any changes that happen." Yeah. And 
And we don't just see uh, her changes. Mm-hmm. We see the changes of other people who are yeah. engaging in the World's Fair. And we see some videos they've posted. Mm. Uh, I'm, I'm turning into plastic, someone yeah. says, in one of their videos. Yeah. And it's clearly like a photographic effect. It's like a filter. Mm-hmm. But it's presented very earnestly that you're not sure how much it, they believe it. Do they believe this? Is the movie wants you to believe mm-hmm. this? Some people uh, are having, like, they're experiencing, like, like tickets to the fair are like i'm being pulled out of their body in a very body horror kind yeah. of way but and, again is, is that we see it in video form yeah. so you don't know if that's like part of this faked online language to add to the creepypasta mm-hmm. or if this is some sort of uh shared digital psychosis mm-hmm. that's being proliferated through uh mm-hmm. maybe a computer virus or again maybe it's real that's mm-hmm. also a possibility for a while um, Casey. Well, and in fact, there's a, a scene later in the movie where something happens that says it's very much real, mm-hmm. but it happens out of sight of any of the other characters. Mm-hmm. So there's still reason for doubt, even though something brazenly extraordinary happened. Yeah. Um, Casey doesn't have anything nearly that visceral mm-hmm. happening to them. Their changes are all internal and psychological, and they start uh, becoming a different person. Uh, mm-hmm. And they start in- sleepwalking is a big part yeah. of. of- like she, when she was a girl, she sleep sleepwalked a lot. Yeah, and she's living with her father, who um, is, is not is around, not around, and and mom is dead. So yeah. she's clearly going through some sort of like domestic turmoil. Mm-hmm. Like the the home yeah. is kind of yeah not providing any kind of comfort. And the, for and her. the internet, specifically mm-hmm. videos, are their outlet mm-hmm. when they can't sleep. They watch uh, ASMR videos, comforting mm-hmm. ASMR videos. Uh, they're the videos that they're making are very confessional and a very YouTube. Yeah. Uh, sort of way and uh, they start interacting with one person who becomes a fan of their uh, videos mm. uh, and just through chat we don't just see, just she, yeah, chat. she doesn't see who this person is and but they only want to talk canonically mm. like within the narrative of the game and yeah. you don't understand how real their relationship is or even what they really want and over the course of the film you realize that this movie is working on a variety of different levels on one hand it is kind of a horror movie mm. Uh, it is also, and I think more profoundly, a coming-of-age film. Mm. This is a story about uh, people using the language that they have been given, mm. the narrative language, the cinematic language, specifically the language of online cinema, not yeah, classic yeah. cinema, uh, in order to uh, filter through process and explain essentially a trans coming-out experience. Mm. And everyone who is going to the World's Fair and exploring the changes happening in their body... Uh-huh. are basically using the language of horror cinema, confessional YouTubing, mm. creepypasta, uh, to illustrate a queer coming of age. Oh, interesting. All and right. I think that is endlessly fascinating. I think it is a really great exploration of the way that we use genre cinema mm. uh, in order to uh, process reality. Okay. Uh, and I think there, without there's not a lot of incident in the movie, so I'm hesitant to go into too much of the plot. But over the, the course, there's, there's not in terms of like plot, like there's yeah. thing, plot like things that happen, yeah. but they're secondary. If, if like you were to give, if I were to give you the bullet points of the plot, it would yeah. I wouldn't need much more than an index card. Like it's pretty yeah. uh, uh, straightforward in terms of the actual events. But uh, over the course of it, we realize that the narrative that Casey is a part of, whether they're weaving it for themselves or mm. uh, uh, feel caught up in it. Um, is not necessarily the takeaway other people are getting from it. Mm. And that it is so easy to misinterpret 
queer narrative, horror narrative, and indeed the, yeah. the new language of online uh, cinematic media uh, if you're out of touch with it. And mm. I think the movie speaks very eloquently about yeah. that well, in, I, a very, in a very weird and unsettling way yeah, right yeah, at the I, end. I, you know? I, I saw this... Um... It's it's interesting that you saw like a coming out narrative, like a tr- a transformation narrative, because um, I, I saw this uh, film very much as, as a film about despair, um, mm. and despair and the way different generations have uh, sort of been uh, going back to bodies, bodies, bodies. In fact, sure. the way uh, a certain kind of uh, artistic and communal uh, and technological language. And psychological psychological language is sort of different from generation to generation. Yeah, and how uh, we're all going to the world's fair is actually incredibly up to date and feels very bracing and very striking in the way it uses these online communities of short videos as essentially theatrical play acting. Yeah, trying on different identities mm-hmm. uh, in a way of sort of pushing the limits of your own uh, emotional experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the, it's the also most... in terms of your own identity as well. Oh, and that's well, yeah. like I said, different, you're trying on yeah. different identities. I'm saying, I think that's, I think, that's um, the part I was keying into. But yeah, yeah fair enough. Uh, so I, I think it's, and that's something that happens. I think with a lot of adolescents, it's like who who am I? And especially if like like Casey, the main character, uh, as she's exploring, you know, sort of her own sadness is trying to figure out: am I uh, am I a, a dark? person Mm -hmm. and something really horrifyingly violent happens uh sort of three quarters of the way through this movie yeah not to a person though no but it's uh, definitely shocking but it's yeah Yeah. it's it's incredibly shocking moment and it's it's more horrifying than anything out of like crimes of the future Mm -hmm. which has like people ripping their organs out left and right yeah do you see i did see crimes of the future it's not great it's Um, got some good ideas i don't think it's very well constructed no yeah like I'm good. It's very Cronenberg. There, there are yeah. scenes that I like in it, and I think the overall themes are fascinating. But I don't think it's executed terribly well. The ear guy was cool. The um, ear guy was cool. The scene where uh, Kristen Stewart tries to seduce Viggo Mortensen is one of the best I, scenes of every, the year. Every scene with Kristen Stewart so is one of the best good. movies because she's, she's so great. <laughs> no, what, so what the hell funny. kind of everything is really weird in this world? I, like, yeah, she. When that movie came out, people were like, "Oh, did she give a bad performance or a great performance?" And I'm like, "She gave a no, it's, great. It's performance. great. It's great. She knew, she's she knew what she was amazing doing. in that movie." Uh, but yeah, I feel like this is a, a character, Casey, is sort of exploring her own sadness and mm-hmm. is not sure how to process that yeah. uh, in the absence of adult figures. Mm-hmm. She's by herself. This is the community she's found. Yeah, she's trying to but, reach out to others. Yeah. But this is not a scare film. This is yeah. not about the evils of the internet. This is actually about how the landscape has changed to the point where you kind of go into these little digital rooms and you get to be a different person, however... Uh, in whichever room you like. Now, that's is something that we've been talking about ever since there have been, like, chat rooms. Your mm-hmm. online persona is different. And now this we've enough time has passed that we get to see how a generation is using this to sort of explore their own minds. Yeah, it's not, about, sort it's of not like, about escaping reality. It's about using... It's about recreating different realities it's and about, figuring out which one is the best. It's about using basically mm. allegory in a very direct way, where mm. this version of myself that I'm presenting to you isn't literally me, but it is an aspect of me. Yeah, or it is the way a way to view me through which I think other people might be able to understand yeah, me, and, whereas... Uh, I am young and I don't fully understand myself yeah, yet. And this is a, my art trying to talk about it. Yeah, and the and what's significant is that uh, Casey ends up interacting with somebody who is not her age. Yeah, and that person uh, 
has a much different view as to what this game represents Mm -hmm. and how uh, he is using it is very different to how she is using it. Exactly. And And I think uh, that the the scene where we realize that disconnect mm -hmm. is the movie. Yeah. yeah, And And, and where you land on that, I think, in terms mm -hmm. of like whose perspective you land on is very telling. I think, I think it's a bit of a Rorschach test. It's a bit of a Rorschach test. And I I think also like something like uh, after sun, depending on your age, you know, it's going to depend on which of those characters you're sympathetic to. See, I don't know if it's about sympathy for me. I think for me, it's a matter of uh, relating understanding. You might be able to relate uh, Mm -hmm. to both characters equally, I suppose, or or Uh at different times. But um, for me, I think it's clear that the movie wants you to understand Casey. Yeah. I think the movie wants you to understand that even if you were coming at it from the perspective of this other character, you missed something. Yeah. And you missed the important well, part. And that I you think... were not you were not understanding the art of a new generation yeah. on the level that that new generation understands it. And yeah, I think that's yeah. profound. Well, and that's... It's not that it's about this other character, but mm. that we have his perspective, I think, uh, sheds mm. a light as to what Casey was doing. I, I think the and, last scene in the movie, mm. and the last monologue, uh, and the fact that we only see that perspective, uh-huh. is very bitter. Oh, uh, absolutely. I yeah. think it's very pointed. There, there, there's, yeah. There is a, a an element of unquenchable sadness in yeah. We're All Going to the World's Fair. Very much so. In that it, it might feel very kind of exhilarating and hopeful and interesting to sort of explore this digital headspace that has been created uh, for a new generation. Hmm. Uh, It's also not saying that this digital headspace has a solution Mm -hmm. or that it's even necessarily uh, going to be overall beneficial. No, it's just a means of expression. Yeah, Yeah. it's it's just a tool. And I feel like uh, it doesn't let the audience come to any kind of concrete conclusions about Casey. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the point, is that Casey is still kind of adrift. Well, they're young. They're figuring themselves out. I think they are coming of age. Mm. Um, So, yeah, even though they're like, you know, this is a very low-budget movie, it's a very short movie, Mm. and yet it had a bigger impact on me than pretty much any other film this year, including movies I love. Yeah. And I think it's... a, A huge part of it is because it is just fascinatingly modern Mm. in its understanding of what cinema is turning into. It's not about like, we have to like rekindle our love with the theatricality of cinema Uh the way that something like Avatar does, or or even something big like RRR, you know, it's about trying to find the new personal stories through new language. Mm. And I really just fell hard for it. I think this movie is amazing. So that's my number one. Um, Real fast, uh, these were our top tens. Whitney's top ten, and again, no particular order except for number one. Bodies, 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 A Banquet, Happening, Apollo Ten and a Half, A Space Age Childhood, Pleasure, Marcel the Shell with Shoes On, After Sun, We're All Going to the World's Fair, Mad God, and Tar. My top ten, uh, a bit of a tie between Glass Onion and Confess Fletch, a great double feature. Uh, <laughs> You've probably seen Glass Onion, but see, see if you miss Fletch. Confess Fletch and you like Glass it's Onion, you'll so really good. like Confess yeah. Fletch. I think. Uh, let's see, uh, Resurrection, Apollo Ten and a Half, Space Age Childhood, Tar, Love and Leashes, Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, Everything Everywhere All at Once, Nope, 
RRR at my number one pick. We're all going to the World's Fair. Uh, Whitney, do you have any uh, runners-up you wanted to give a quick I mention? I do, I do indeed. Um, Everything Everywhere All at Once was on my runners-up, as was yeah. Nope, as was RRR. Um, those those are all excellent movies. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, if, if, if you convince me, I could probably put them on my top ten. Uh, a movie came out earlier this year called Compartment Number 6, hmm. which was about a, a woman traveling to a remote location on a train, and it was about... Uh, the, the man she had to share the compartment with. Hmm. And uh, it explores a very specific phenomenon for people who are used to traveling. Your travel friend. Yeah. The person you meet on the road. And yeah. how that is sort of a, a weirdly intense and profound uh, friendship. Uh, I really loved Kimmy, the Steven Soderbergh thriller. It's a very good the, film. Uh, the uh, voice recorder and a murder gone awry. Uh, Resurrection was on my list. Uh, a really wonderful punk rock movie called Dinner in America. Oh, you really uh, like that I, one. I love yeah. Dinner in America. Yeah, really like yeah it's a, a, a young punk rock fan of this punk rock ne'er-do-well, and they sort of... Uh, often do well? Well, they, they, they bond over their mutual hatred of the world, and that's always okay. really fun. So they ne'er-do yeah. well. They, they, they do well. Um, uh, God help me, I liked Elvis. Uh, Elvis is Elvis fun. is really a lot of fun. I got nothing against Elvis. Elvis is a good uh, so movie. I, I think Elvis and Babylon would make a good double feature. <laughs> um, and I like Babylon as well. Yeah. Um, a Wounded Fawn is a horror movie I saw recently. I which expected is, that to make your list. You really seem very fond of that. It's, it's really, that. it's yeah, it has a lot yeah. of like ancient Greek symbolism and super low budget and you know, it plays with those things really, really well. Uh, mm. Peter Strickland came up with a movie called Flex Gourmet. I missed it. <laughs> I needed to see this one. Which is about a warring enclaves within the world of uh what do they call it uh oral cuisine like they make musical soundscapes out of foodstuffs and this huh. is like a whole subgenre of music that peter strickland is actually literally a part of and he's put out records oh, weird. i want to buy some of these CDs i didn't realize that was a real them. thing yeah. that's amazing okay uh there's an, a really wonderful animated film on netflix called the sea beast that's a good uh, one yeah which had you know sea monsters film. and pirate ships and all the rest uh better than any of those how to train your dragon movies i liked nope uh i loved orphan first kill uh that's a fun flick <laughs> it's got a one wonderful twist in the middle it's a very fun flick i like pearl a lot and and yeah confess, confess flesh was on my list as well all right uh some of my runners up and i'll, I'll try to make it quick um, After Yang is a very, very sweet oh, yeah, sci-fi like, film. Like I have a few issues with it and the more that I've thought yeah. about it, but I still think it's mostly very good. Uh, let's see here. Bodies, Bodies, Bodies is a yeah. runner-up for me as well. Uh, a very a movie that is better than it has any right to be is Chippendale Rescue Rangers. <laughs> it is really fun. That's a very fun, very well-written movie. That's, that's, that's a good modern version of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and I hope uh, I hope it continues to have respect. Um, Roger uh, Rabbit's in it. It could just be a sequel. That's true. I don't know why they just say that. Uh, Decision to Leave, another great mystery movie, came out this year. I was rather fond of it. Elvis was fun as well. Uh, I'm not usually a huge fan of documentaries, but I really loved Fire of Love. Oh, I didn't see Fire of Love. Fire of Love was yeah, about... Uh, two volcanologists, people who study volcanoes, uh, who were married and spent their whole lives studying and living next to volcanoes. And the footage that they captured themselves is the most stunning footage I've seen in any movie this year. It's unbelievably breathtaking. And on top of it all, just a really good human story. Um, Happening was on my runners-up as well. It was okay. really close to my top ten. Right. Uh, the anime film Inuo. Yeah, yeah, you mentioned this one a lot. That's yeah. a really, really great rock opera slash demon curse slash serial killer slash uh, political intrigue slash historical buddy movie. Um, it's got everything. The music is really, really cool. Uh, and uh, yeah, if that sounds even vaguely interesting, please seek it out. It's great. Um, 
a Balzac adaptation called Lost Illusions. I, I, I missed this one. I You'd really like it, I think. Yeah. It's really quite fun. Uh, it's one of those uh, uh, adaptations of classic lit uh, that do a great job of establishing why it's still relevant. Uh, it is very much about like the the art slash art criticism scene and if you had told someone that this was like written today they would say well that's a bit on the nose isn't it <laughs> it's really great uh marcel Zoe, susan is lovely all right uh let's see pearl is really really great prey the predator prequel is fucking great <laughs> like it's just a really rock solid monster movie yeah, if you've, yeah. even if you've never seen a predator movie it's fantastic might, might be my favorite Predator movie. It's up there. It's between that I, and number one. And it's the mm. more I think about it, the more it might be Prey. And, and, um, and I, I hear um, they mm. they took the cue. Uh, Prey mm. is set in the distant past, and they're mm. going to do another Predator film set in the distant past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard about that. So good, mm. smart, smart thinking. Uh, let's see here. There's a really good thriller that came out called See for Me. Uh, it is about a uh, blind girl in, in a home invasion scenario. But they use one of those apps where uh, you call someone to look through your camera phone to help you with any sort of uh, uh, task where you might need someone to see for you. Uh, and it becomes like that person or the person on the other end of the phone, like against uh, mm. criminals. Really solid Hitchcockian thriller. Not enough people saw it. Just really good. I want to give it a shout. Um, she Said I thought was really well handled. I like Just She Said. I love very well crafted well. movie. Glad you, glad you saw that one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Summering is a very interesting, sweet film. Uh, about uh, the last weekend before mm-hmm. the end of summer when a, a group of young girls uh, find a dead body and decide to do something about it. Uh, <laughs> and it doesn't go where you expect. It's not It's not Stand By Me. It's a different vibe. Uh, is but it Weekend at Bernie's? No, it's not Weekend at Bernie's. Oh. That would be, that would also have been great. Um, Turning Red is lovely. Really wonderful film. Mm-hmm. Uh, VHS 99 is one of the better horror anthologies in recent years. Just every single piece of it's pretty good, uh, if not great. Uh, the Woman King is fucking awesome. <laughs> so cool it's good good yeah. uh historical action picture yeah really excellently handled on, yeah. on every level and, and something i didn't know going in uh mm. maria bello yeah wrote this the actress yeah wrote the story for that yeah film. good for her yeah right i saw her in the credits i was like really good for her yeah. uh women talking is also fucking great uh and then uh lastly a movie i didn't get to review when it came out and i'm not as quite as high on it as uh, Whitney and Lawn were, but it's very amusing, and I hope people, more people see it. Weird, the Al Yankovic story. <laughs> oh, it's delightful. The, the, the handful oh, of so scenes funny. that stand out uh-huh. make the scenes where I'm like, this is okay. Mm. Totally worth it. So uh-huh. please see it. It's really, it's a delight. And uh, that is the best movies of 2022. That's right. Yeah, we will be back next Again, week with new reviews. There are always going to be movies we didn't see. I didn't get to see Hit the Road. I yeah, that one was really good. I didn't see EO, the donkey movie. The I didn't see EO. EO's Skolomovsky film. Let's uh, see. That, that one got a lot of acclaim. Yeah, uh, once a nice. I didn't see EO. I didn't see After Sun, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see here. I didn't see Bros, unfortunately. Bros is quite good. I, I didn't like see Bros. Triangle Sadness. I know a lot of people love mm-hmm. that movie. Uh, let's see here. Ba, 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 ba. Um, I didn't see the inspection. Actually really, yeah, I actually really like bros. See bros. bros okay. Good one. Yeah. I didn't see empire of light. I didn't see causeway, you know, a couple of major see, yeah, films. Co- at the end of the year. Good, uh, good performances. In causeway. I heard that. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but anyway, you know, we, we do the best we can. Anyway, thank you for everybody for listening. Uh, if you want to talk about any of our, uh, any of our picks, we'd love to hear from you. If you want to send in your own picks for the best movies of the year, We'd love to hear from you. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. 
Once again, that is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We might read your email on an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. Whitney, what is our P.O. Box? Send us an actual physical letter to the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Yep, we're also on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And, of course, big special thank you to all of our patrons over at patreon.com slash Critically acclaimed network where you can listen to this and all of our other new podcasts without any advertising breaks whatsoever. And we also have a ton of exclusive shows over there, including Commentary Tracks, a show where we review every single film ever nominated for Best Picture, a show where we review every single film ever nominated for Best International Feature, a show where we review every single episode of Star Trek in order, a show where we review every single step up. (laughs) <laughs> which is i assure you is interesting <laughs> we love that we're, show to pieces. we're very fond of the step up movies yeah and... and more things besides we do discord hangouts and the like so again thank you to all of our patrons if you want to sign up we'd love to have you uh and we we would love to give you all kinds of exclusive shows so uh thank you once again one and all and never forget everyone's a critic Sorry, what? What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.